Thanks for taking the time to download this BBC Radio 5 Live podcast. To search for other podcasts you might like, click bbc.co.uk slash 5 Live, where you'll also find our terms of use. What's up? What's up? What's up? What's up? Shall I tell you what's up? I can't remember my password. Yeah, that is up. Um, change before logging on. The f- before we do anything else, can the I user's say... user's password must be changed. <laughs> okay. This is exciting. Right. This is a man typing... You, t- you, you, you yeah, talk. Exactly. I, I will I, talk. So what, anyway. what, what, what is my password? Can you remember? It's I am King Simon. Isn't it? Okay. Something right, like that. that. Is it? Yeah, I don't know. Being you, it'll be ruletheworld.org or something. Do you think? Yeah. Or, no, I know it'll be... Meg Ryan is lovely. Do you know she was? I went peculiarly Welsh there. Really lovely. Yeah, she ha- kind of hasn't really done anything for a long time. I remember it was a sequence of movie guests that we had, and they'd all kissed Meg Ryan, <laughs> and it became a running joke. And in fact, uh, one of the early interviews that we did with well, Tom, I don't even remember. Was and Tom the joke Hanks? Was, Have you not kissed Meg Ryan? We told and because Tom Hanks is like the perfect guest yeah. always. Um, although, although I think Tom may be in danger. Tom Hanks may be in danger of going to second place on our best loved guests list. It is possible. But I told him about this running joke before we did the interview. Yeah. And then all the way through, he kept on saying, by the way, she's a great kisser. Mm-hmm. So if you just talk about something interesting while well, I so I want out to, what my password I is. want to say congratulations to the the uh, the ushers at the Connaught in Worthing, who apparently... Uh, Connaught Theatre? Yeah, they show, they show films as well. I was a stagehand there. Well, in that case, this this uh, story has a personal connection to you, which is that there was a screening of um, you know how we we like ushers, ushers and projectionists are our yep. faves people in the yep. whole world. They are the the most important, but probably least appreciated people in terms of uh, cinema. And uh, there was a screening this week of Purple Rain that they put on, you know, in honor of Prince and uh, well attended. And then at the moment in the film when Prince is about to play Purple Rain, suddenly in the front row. Somebody whips out an iPhone and starts filming the screen. Purple Rain, incidentally, has been available on DVD and download for several years. But somebody actually starts holding up an iPhone. Maybe maybe that person was actually just an idiot. Well, at which point the ushers apparently, like, like, you know, like a very fast usher ninjas, sorted the problem. Did they take him down? With Her. an amazing display. No, no, of... I think they just, they very quietly and with a minimum fuss to all other patrons ensured that this was not going to go on. And I just want to say congratulations to them because it sounds like, it sounds like top ushering. It sounds like they, they saw the problem, they identified the problem, they dealt with the problem and they didn't spoil the film. They just dealt with them. Good for them. And as anybody who has ever ushed knows, there's good ushing and bad ushing. I'm sure you were. I just despair though because uh, we did an outing to see Eye in the Sky uh, and and you got I in the auditorium. Oh no, we just just it's the, it wasn't as bad as the full Mexican meal for the Jungle Book, but it was another full Russell fest for the whole movie. And I needed a ninja usher to come in and just take them out. <laughs> but sadly, they weren't available. No. But apparently, uh, at the Connor in Worthing, so you worked there, yeah? I was a stagehand. Yeah, yes. Fine, briefly. Well, apparently, top ushering. So and, well, and, we'd, and I'd like to say once again to all the ushers and projectionists of the world, we well, thank that you. The message sent out from the Connaught 
is which is always home of like uh, associated because because uh, I grew up there with like Christopher Biggins in Panto that kind of thing. Mm. But you know it's a it's a really lovely theatre with with a very nice curtain because mm. I had to open the curtain at half time. Did that strain your little Lord oh, Fauntleroy arms? Telling me, <laughs> telling <laughs> me. Do you have to sit down and have a glass of milk after? It was a little bit. It was a little bit stressful. That sends out a message though. Up with this, we will not put. And yeah, uh, and good for them. Good for them. By the way, it might not have been an iPhone. It could have been any phone which did that kind of thing. I didn't say. Yes, you did. Oh, for heaven's sake. All right. They took out Can't even a, say that. I don't know what type of phone it was, but it was a mobile device that was inappropriate in a cinema. Charles in Edinburgh. Dear Comb Over and Comb Forward. Very good. How does Mystic Mark feel about his assurance that Donald Trump will not be it's the not Republican happen. candidate? It's not going to happen. And how, it's not going to happen. How is, Okay. Because it's not going to happen. So I'm, this is actually just you putting your fingers in your ears. No, and la 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 la, la 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 la. It's not going to happen. Has it happened yet? No. Is it going to happen? Yes. No. It hasn't happened yet. What is? How is that even remotely possible? It's going to be struck down by the Almighty. It's not going to happen. Why? Because it's not going to happen. How? Because it doesn't work like that. You're just repeating the same thing over no, and over. No, but it's, 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 like, it's, like, it's like you say, I'm telling you, it's not. this is a matter of fact. This is not a matter of, this is a matter of fact. It's not going to happen. I know, I, I know, I know uh, that it looks like it's going to happen, but it's not going but to happen. But something else will happen which yes, will something stop else, it. Yes, it's not going to happen. And where do you get this certainty from? The world. And what is the world telling you? It's exactly what I'm saying to you. The world is whispering in my ear, it's okay, Mark. It's not going to happen. Have you been eating cheese? Yeah. And did you, do you know what just happened? What? Just when you said that, Robin, our horrible editor, whispered in my ear, like the, the voice of the world, yes, it is. Like in exactly that tone. That was the world. Not happening, not happening, not happening. It really isn't, Robin. Stop doing that. It really is not going to happen. Everyone else listening to this podcast is going, Mark... It actually is. It actually isn't. Has it happened yet? No. No, no, no. Sorry. Therefore, right. Is there, is there, so no, no. Has it happened yet? No. So therefore, how do you know it's going to happen? Has Christmas happened yet? No, but I'm fairly certain we'll get there. Yeah, I think comparing Donald Trump to Christmas is just about the grinchiest thing you've ever done. You are just deliberately being accused. Last week, you, you wanted me to say hello to Kim Jong Il. Or Actually, un, whichever one Kim it was. Anyway, on that Kim subject. Un, and then this, this, now you're comparing Donald Trump to Christmas. There are now two... Uh, two dear listeners. Two dear listeners. One of them is presumably with the special services. Dear Call and Runnings, this is uh, Ben Harwood. I've got three things to thank you for. First... The fact that Donald Trump isn't going to be the candidate. Eye in the sky. I was on the fence, but your Wittatany reviews uh, persuaded us to go, and I'm glad we did. Our thoughts echoed for days afterwards with its story, a powerful film. Next, the Witter app, which I understand you can't really legally thank us for no uh, thank you for do but, we have a lot to do with that but you did sort of invent it says ben and which has dramatically improved my view of swindon <laughs> in discovering that there are many other battenberg eaters in the vicinity <laughs> thirdly jack garrett who i'd never heard of before but now i can't stop listening to although if jack could write in to recommend a gig that would be, be great um anyway uh, ben who's an ma ba most improved badminton player of 1999 i love that phrase most improved can you tell me anything else that isn't going to happen um, you're absolutely the world certain. is not going to stop spinning on its axis Fine, well, the, round like a spiral in a spiral like a wheel within a wheel you know it is nothing it? like an orange or an apple spinning silently in space Noel Harrison yes Wimbles of Your Mind yes what was I the, love that record I, I do, do you remember what the B-side was no Letch on the Beach 
Pardon? Most bizarrely. Maybe. Lech, as in lech, lecherous? Yes. No. Lech on the beach. Really bizarre. I mean, really strange, because Wilma's of your mind, beautiful, uh, winsome, orchestral, thoughtful. You were suddenly aware that the autumn leaves were turning to the colour of her hair, which is one of the most heartbreaking lines evs i'm just gonna flip that over oh lech on the beach and how does lech on the beach go uh, it's definitely going on the playlist or is it not is it i can't remember whether it's as vulgar as it, as it sounds suggests but it'd be the kind of thing that listen, noel on. harrison did this yeah rex harrison's progeny son indeed did lech on the beach yes <laughs> anyway enough of this i have taken so long to find my password <laughs> you've not found it no i have I have. So I'm now... and, do you, and do you know what your password was? Not going to be Trump. And what is it now? Still not going to be Trump. Okay, that's very good. So if anyone stumbles upon my computer, that's what it is to get me in. Uh, hey, here's a, here's, a, here's, a, here's a good one. What? How many Donald Trumps does it take to become the candidate? I don't know. How many Donald Trumps does it take to make the candidate? Doesn't matter. Not going to happen. Okay, it's not that funny or politically astute. But anyway, we'll let it, leave it hang just for the moment because we're going to leave it hanging like a chad. Like a bushy and trad. <laughs> and look, look at the clock. Look, it's two minutes to two. We have to shut up this nonsense. No, we've got two, two whole minutes to fill. Okay. Well, no, less than that, because Ellie will finish her anti-Tottenham ramblings in about 90 seconds. Just explain to me, in 90 seconds, what is it that's happened that is allowing this? You won a match, but they say you didn't. Ellie what supports is the thing? Arsenal. Right. I support, <laughs> Arsenal. I support, yeah. I support Spurs. And Spurs yes. had a very successful season, but yes. Arsenal fans are very condescending. Right. That's it. That's but so what was the what was the thing that you did that you said that's a weird way of reading that match? They're saying that we blew the season. We haven't got time to discuss this. If you want to... I don't, we're, get, we're on in 60 seconds. Yeah, that's Thank fine. you. On with the show. No, but I, so I don't understand. Paid him out. I don't understand. Paid him out. Trump's not going to be the candidate. So Mark's here. Anyway, it's very good to see you, Mark. You're very good to see you, Simon. Chipper and fine. And, is that, and if people are watching on the live stream, and why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't they? They will see the most enormous musical instrument just behind your shoulder. What is that? It's a double bass. Well, it's my double bass. Why don't my you just... very, very lovely double okay. bass. And for the radio listener who can't yes. see the pictures, could you just walk over there yeah. and just make make a noise with I'll it? I'll have to take my headphones off. It's okay. I'm walking. I'm walking. Okay, we just need to hear what it's going to sound. There's going to be a lot more of this just a little bit later on. Okay. Yeah. That's what it sounds like. That is... One of those moving musical sequences we've ever broadcast <laughs> on this show. Uh, we can put that on the playlist. I think that's not a problem. Anyway, yeah, that so was <laughs> why have you brought your double bass in then? Because, thank you for asking. Because in the you know Tom Hiddleston coming on the program, and I the last time I saw Tom Hiddleston was on the red carpet for the the London Film Festival opening of uh, High Rise, and we'd had a quick interview, and the crowd was going nuts. I mean, literally nuts for and you. For you, for me, and a little exactly. bit. Of Tom was feeling very left out, and as he went off, I said, "I said you have to go, go be famous." And he then sent me this lovely message saying, "You know, it was really, it was nice to me. You know, when you said go be famous, my heart broke because I suddenly thought, you know, is that how it appears?" And I said, "No, no, no." So anyway, so we started messaging each other, just not, you know. So then he was coming on the program, and I sent him a message saying, "Yeah, you should bring your guitar and play a Hank Williams song." And I thought he wouldn't reply, and then because I've got in in the film. One of his guitarists uses an Epiphone Zephyr, and I've got a 1957 Epiphone Zephyr, which is exactly the same as the thing. So anyway, he said, oh, well, I'll bring my Gibson in. And I said, well, in that case, I'll bring the bull fiddle in. And he went, fine, what do you the want to play? The bull fiddle. The double bass. All right. And um, 
so he said, what do you want to play? I thought, oh, he's, he's, he's actually going to do this. So then this morning at 5.30, I was standing on Brockenhurst train station with a double bass thinking, if he doesn't turn up with a guitar, I'm going to look like the biggest prawn on the face of the planet. But then, God bless him, he did. Uh, and you can see and hear uh, what happened just after 2.30 because <laughs> it has been filmed in virtual reality. I don't understand how that works. No, I don't. But you can watch it. And the, I imagine all the instructions and all the details that you're going to need are online. So just after 2.30, we're going to talk to Tom Hiddleston. There's going to be musical accompaniment. Mm -hmm. It's going to be a, a fiesta of sound. Um, who's this? Oh, it's Sarah, look. How is Sarah? Um, well, let's find out. And what better, she's emailing the show, she said, what better occasion to email than the birthday of the man who introduced me to your programme? For only the third time in 11 years of marriage, my husband is working away from home for several nights. Unfortunately, this coincides with his 40th birthday, oh. delay, delaying celebrations. My plan to surprise him with a mention on his favourite show was somewhat thwarted when I pressed him for details of his London assignment, the way you would. Mm -hmm. Apparently it involves counting. I imagine this is something to do with the voting, which has been... Oh, on. I see. Sorry, I was way behind. I'm guessing that, yeah. here, only to be told that I mustn't share his name or location due to the Official Secrets Act. <laughs> How do I make really? these birthday wishes interesting enough? Listen, we've made... had people sending in tweets from nuclear bunkers. Yeah. And, you know, really. We'll, we'll broadcast anything, <laughs> as I think you can tell. Anyway, says Sarah, all I can say is happy birthday to the man who was carrying his phone around as he prepared to leave the house last weekend, listening without headphones to a popular Witter-based podcast. As you walked into the room where your wife was running her bath, she accosted you with a shrill, Don't cross the streams! Your initial bemusement turned to a smile when you realised that she was also enjoying her weekly dose of wittertainment at an equally high volume, and one of the reasons you married her was her ability to make slightly obscure Ghostbuster slash podcast jokes early on a Saturday morning. Don't lose count. We can't wait to see you soon. Anyway, so that's all anonymous, and I think that's all perfectly safe. Yes. And the nation can, and as long as Sarah's other half yeah. cannot lose count. Yes. That's right. We would have put him off now. 6,000. Oh. <laughs> One. What pile do I put these in? Oh, it doesn't matter, really. Uh, top ten in just a second. Kate from London. As an old trot, I am surprised by your view that physicians on call merit a more lenient application of the Code of Conduct than the rest this, of the I cinema. Knew this was going to happen. This I is knew one of the few. Gonna happen. So last week, it's you know all you relented equal, and you said more equal than others. Medics and, are on call. Yeah. can take their phones into the cinema. A great yes, many people have says, got in touch. Wait, Kate says a great many people are on call for their work or home lives in addition to physicians if they can't turn off their phones for the duration of a film they should stay home and avail themselves how this began of the dvd of the week going to the cinema should be limited to phone free days off frankly though my standards have been so lowered in recent weeks i'm i'm just grateful if people don't eat full mexican meals yeah. in front of me i'm just grateful if people don't actually hold up their phones and attempt to film prince singing purple rain elliot kendall uh i'm 11 Simon and Mark. I'm a different Elliot to the 11-year-old who emailed last week. We have two 11-year-olds called Elliot and writing been, to the programme. I've been listening to your podcast for a year now, but uh, the last emails bolted me up in bed whilst listening. Not sure that works. Interesting. Yes. I bolted? Yeah. Okay, well, I'll go, we'll go with it. We all, know, we all know what it means. Firstly, as a year six student, the phrase modal verbs and dividing fractions and frontal adverbials, which we were talking about last week, made me bolt. I would like to thank Mr Sykes for his email, which drew attention to the impossible year six sats, which we were talking about last week, uh, and to you for helping me through the revision period with your hilarious and informative show. 
Hello to Jason. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. And all the best to everyone who is trying to revise at the moment. A lot of exams. There's English at the moment. Child child 3 is currently doing his English. A lot of people trying to do the revision with this programme on, and we're not helping, really. (laughs) But anyway, you can always pause us and come back. Uh, Should we do the box office top 10? Let's do it. And then we're making our way towards Hiddle Vision. We are. Uh, Top 10 is 28 Days Later, Secret Cinema... Well, the film is obviously, as it's always been, the secret cinema is, uh, you know, they do a whole sort of performance about it, which I haven't seen, so I can't possibly review that. But presumably, it's zombie-tastic. I would think so. That would be quite exciting. Yes, but, I'm, but let's not pass any form of judgment since we haven't done it. No, that's true. But we know about 28 Days Later. Yes, which I like very much. It's a very, very good uh, very good film. Have you caught up with Eddie? The I haven't, no. What do, what do you think you might make of it? It sounds charming. Right. Uh, now, Son of Saul is at number eight, and a lot of correspondence. Right, yes, about go this ahead. Game. Okay, so, okay. well, actually, well, you, you, just remind us of Son of Saul and a couple of thoughts, and then I'll go through uh, some of the. So, emails. this is uh, Lazarus Nemesis uh, film set in Auschwitz in 1944, and I thought it was really something. I thought it was completely overpowering. It is a film which ad- which raises and addresses all those uh, very, very um, pertinent issues about what one may and may not represent in, in a drama which is dealing with the Holocaust. It is very important that Claude Landsman, um, you know, the great French filmmaker, Shoah, and uh, most recently Last of the Unjust, approved of the film said that he thought it gave a very honest portrayal of, uh, of the Sonderkommando and also thought that uh, the director had y- used the language of cinema in a way which was, the phrase he used was very modest. And I think that's absolutely right. I think it is a, a really important, significantly important film. I think it is really, really hard to watch, which is exactly as it should be. But I think it has proper moral fibre. Uh, And some of your responses. Adam Cousins uh, in London. Enough has been said about the very effective approach to the cinematography, which made me feel claustrophobic with the slight panic that an ominous being or spectre somehow was lurking around me. It was uncomfortable and very effective, and I guess that kind of hellish paranoia is as close as a filmmaker can get to portraying the experiences of someone like Saul. Son of Saul is a horrific, nightmarish, deeply unsettling experience in a very important film. It's difficult to recommend, but recommend it, I do. It's a film where the storylines eventually comes second to the nerve-shredding experience of just being there. Um, This is uh, anonymous email. Mark and Simon, I've redrafted this email several times trying to express what I want to say about this film because I don't seem to quite have the words to describe my experience. Everything I write seems trite and mawkish, something the film manages wholly to avoid. But I felt compelled to write in... So these are just some uh, some of the thoughts on this email. Yeah. Um, I'm related to Holocaust survivors, and whenever I hear, read or watch anything related to the Holocaust, I think of them and what they must have had to endure. This film's depiction of the horrors of the concentration camps made me truly believe it must have been the closest thing to hell on earth. As Mark said in his review last week, this is an incredibly harrowing film, but when I came out of the cinema, I couldn't help but look at the street in which I live with the same total focus that had been demanded of me during the film. I felt keenly how fragile life is and how you must not waste one single second of it. And just say something in relation to that about, you know, the, and thank you for emailing that in, saying that you had to redraft the email. I have to say, writing and talking about Son of Saul is very, very difficult because part of what it does is find a cinematic language that is appropriate for its subject matter. 
And when you write or talk about it, you're talking about it in another language. I remember hearing that, you know, people, that discussion about, can you ever discuss a painting? Because the painting is in the, you know, it's in the language of painting. And it is a real tribute, I think, to the director of Son of Saul that so many people seem to have the same experience of watching the film. And part of that experience is it is almost impossible to put into words. Uh, Mark, uh, who's in Barnsley, uh, I'm not really an emailer and certainly not normally compelled to write into radio shows, but having just been to Son of Saul at the rather wonderful showroom theatre in Sheffield, uh, my compulsion to write in has overwhelmed me. It is hard to put into words the truly visceral impact this film has had on me and it deserves all the plaudits it's received, whilst... Quite rightly, a lot has been said about the visual tone of the film and the way Nemes uses the narrow field of vision as a metaphor for the awful claustrophobia of the hell of the prisoner uh, POWs were living in. I'd like to mention the sound editing on the film. The sound is extraordinary. The way in which the soundtrack was recorded and edited, providing hints and sometimes very graphic detail of what was happening just off screen, was truly harrowing whilst at the same time remarkable. In an age when multiple deaths and carnage rained down from every corner of the superhero Leviathans, I'm just glad films like Son of Saul exist as a reminder of what can be achieved without millions being spent on special effects and CGI to portray the true horror of war and the Holocaust easily, says Mark, the best film of 2016 so far. Uh, yeah, and I think many people, I mean, I know people who saw it in Cannes and came away thinking the same thing. The first the first I'd heard of the film was um, when Pete Bradshaw told me about it and said, you know, he it was a, it was a, I think the word he used was, a, he said either really important, he used a, he used a word that, that Pete doesn't use that often. And so many people have had the same experience. Son of Souls at number eight. Fred Request is at number seven. Which isn't um, unfriended. Uh, it wants to be unfriended, but it isn't. Uh, it's for the first, you know, two thirds, it's a kind of semi-interesting horror movie about uh, online stalkery, social media uh, chills. It loses its place the more we move away from the computer screen. And it does remind me, formally that what's really interesting about Unfriended is that it, the whole film plays out on the computer screen and the, and the genius of doing that, the genius of saying, OK, let's do this whole film where it actually makes sense, which is on the computer screen. Unfriended has some, you know, some chilling moments in it, but they do run out as we move away from the computer screen. Uh, Demolitions at number six. <sighs> I wanted to... Sorry. <laughs> right, no, on that. OK, stop. Fine. Jeffrey sorry. in Melbourne. <laughs> so Sorry. Good day, B1 and B2, which is a reference to bananas in pyjamas who are coming down the stairs. Bananas in pyjamas are wearing underwear. Anyway, something like that. Okay. And they call each other B1. B1 and B2. Regarding Mark sighing during demolition. Sorry. Should sighing be added to the code as a violation? Because I think so. One should keep one's opinions to oneself until the film is over. Mm -hmm. An audible sighing can be construed as precipitous criticism. Mm -hmm. I'm afraid I've... That is how James King interpreted it. Picked up on my editorial sighing during disappointing films. Yeah, I know. I'm really sorry. I didn't... I didn't... I mean, James King did sort of tell me off. He said, you know, blimey, there was a... I didn't even know I was doing it. Um... We, and I, I agree. It's uh, there is yes. There's no question. It is it is a break of the code that one should keep all. But then you can argue you can sigh. But hang on. But then you can argue like, well, if you're in a comedy film, should you be laughing out loud? Because isn't that a verdict on the joke? You know. I mean, the point is there are certain noises that one makes that it's pretty hard to police. And I don't mean no, obviously that, not. That. But I, you know, I did say I sighed because I like the filmmaker and I like the. Actors, and I just thought the film was very, very, very full of itself and a bit of a disappointment. 
Uh, Dean in Lincoln, uh, my wife and I watched uh, this movie a few weeks ago at a secret screening at our local cinema. Whilst I agree that the film delivers the metaphors with the subtlety of a punch in the face, <laughs> I thought Jake Gyllenhaal and Judah, uh, Judah Lewis's performances kept us entertained they throughout. Are, good. They're good. I mean, they're good performers. They're doing really good work. It's just that the work, that the, 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 it, the script, it's the script is so navel-gazing. What I thought Mark failed to mention was the many laugh-out-loud comedy moments the film okay. delivered with perfect timing. My wife and I came out and agreed it was very enjoyable and had a genuine feel-good factor. Okay, well, that it, that may be actually my my error. I wanted it to be something that it wasn't, and that is, a, you know, that's that's a, cl- a classic kind of mistake. Don't, you know, don't... I just wanted that particular director, Jean-Marc Vallée, to do something better than that. Bastille Day is at number five. It's so much more fun than it could have been. When we've seen, you know, so many... London has fallen recently. Bastille Day is one of those uh, thrillers that essentially takes the turned-up-to-an-levity-stupid route, but does it in a way which is slightly subversive and slightly plays with your expectations and uh, has a sort of good fun romping feel, has great action set pieces, has uh, Idris Elba proving that he is in the top running for the Bond thing. And I mentioned that because obviously that every time anyone says Tom Hiddleston, you have to mention Bond now, although brilliantly you managed to re- refrain from doing yeah, that. Yeah, well... Because uh, I know, because because what's the point? Yeah. But, you know, but you see Idris Elba doing this and you think, actually, I could, I, could, I could buy you as Bond. Zootropolis is at four. I like it very much, not just because I think it's beautifully designed and because... Uh, you know, I love looking at it, but because I, I like the message of the film, which is let's all be tolerant and let's all get on with each other. And, you know, the world will be a better place. So uh, number three is Eye in the Sky, uh, which, as I said, uh, went to see this week. It was uh, spoiled for you by Along with all the, the picnickers who had, uh, who'd come in with vast arrays of food that they proceeded to munch all the way through. And which is incredible as well, particularly with a film like Eye in the Sky, which is real proper nail-biting tension married to a uh, you know quite dark moral discussion i thought it was i thought i thought it was brilliant i thought it was brilliant and 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 i and gave thanks whilst cursing everyone else that it wasn't made by oliver stone or wasn't <laughs> made by michael bay because it's a you know it's like life is it's very new as yeah. all our correspondence has been yeah. it's very nuanced and you come out thinking well maybe that was right maybe that was wrong but how what a beautifully played and, and I'm fascinated here because I still haven't seen the trailer that you say the trailer makes it look rubbish. Well, I just thought it was rather crass. I had no intention of going to see it at yeah. all. And then everyone comes out saying, wow, that's a really good film. And it's still yeah. at number three. Yeah. Um, uh, and then we have The Jungle Books at number two. So here Which we go lovely. with Michelle. Um, Michelle Farrell, actually. I'm writing in about The Jungle Book in the hopes that we might finally hear a dissenting opinion. I absolutely loathed The Jungle Book. I thought it was flimsy both in aesthetics and in story. The scenery looked very clearly flake, uh, fake and too flat in some places. Really? And too cartoonishly vibrant in others. And the animals themselves were completely uncanny, as in the valley. I don't understand the decision to render completely realistically. If they can talk like people, why not let them physically emote like people? I agree with Simon that the songs felt shoehorned in like half-hearted cash grabs at our nostalgia. For the original, the story was meandering, terribly paced. I was at various points bored or confused, but very rarely amused. I'm still not not sure what lesson Mowgli actually learnt in the end, but whatever it was, it was certainly less clear on, uh, or compelling than the lesson from the original movie. I'm genuinely shocked each week to hear the endless glowing reviews and hope you might share mine so us dissenters don't feel completely left out. Yours disgruntedly, Michelle C. Farrell, former first bassoonist. Tim Morgan, I learnt to love the original Disney movie, uh, but 
when my 12-year-old self first saw it when it came out, he, that is I, hated it. The trouble was I adored the books and what Disney did to them was, well, disney them. And I detested it. Replacing all the noble savage stuff with jokes, songs and slush, blasphemy. I was so disappointed, I remember I almost cried. My 12-year-old self would have loved the new one. Not sure he would have teared up like I did, but it's so wonderful. Life-affirming, exciting, funny, the right length and reasonably true to the original books. What a performance from Neil Setti who must have done most of it bouncing off a green screen. <laughs> the audience applauded at the end of our screening, which is always the hallmark of a great film, in my humble opinion. The last time that happened when I was in a cinema was a screening of Laurel and Hardy's Music Box. So well done, Disney. Wow. So, and Music Box is a film which both you and I love. So just, uh, and uh, yes, that's right, Jungle Book's number two, Captain America Civil War, CACW number one. Bizarrely for a film which shares the same basic plot setup as Batman versus Superman, uh, Dawn of Justice, which is it's all to do with the collateral damage of previous missions. Uh, this was fun and colourful and seemed like it wanted to be enjoyed rather than endured. I think it is too baggy. I think it is too long. I think there are moments in which it does uh, start to resemble a cosplay fancy dress marathon. But I enjoyed myself watching it and I didn't do that watching Batman vs Superman. Uh, Phoebe, and I think this is Phoebe Aslanajic Wakefield. Okay. Um, I've done this in easy headings, so you can tell I'm revising for my law exams for about six hours a day. So this is very neatly done, like a post-it note for Very reading. good. Praise. Captain America Civil War represents a return to form by Marvel after the very disappointing Age of Ultron. I was incredibly impressed by the tone of the film, which managed to simultaneously be very dark and very funny, both qualities that often escape superhero movies. I could see that it could be a rather confusing film if one was not familiar with the Marvel Universe. But if you're well-versed, then it's an absolute feast for fans. Criticisms. Okay, this is great. Neither my boyfriend nor I were sure about the odd sexual tension between Vision and Scarlet Witch. Where on earth is that going? Captain America remains bland, uncharismatic, and annoyingly enough, my boyfriend's favourite character. I'll admit he's got a lovely jawline, but he is just a little bit dull. Both things which could be said of my boyfriend when he's going on about the captain. Conclusion. Very good. Ultimately, this movie is pure, pleasurable escapism. Time flies by watching this film whilst watching Batman v Superman was a bit like wading through honey. Four out of five stars. Plot would need tightening to warrant a five. I like the way that the, you revise for an exam, you get some discipline in your head, and that affects absolutely everything yeah. that you do. Whoever wrote that letter is going to get straight A's, aren't they? It's Phoebe Wakefield. Phoebe, Just straight A's for you. Very briefly, Catherine, who's 14... Went to see CACW, High Expectations. I think perhaps this was my mistake. The central conflict between Iron Man and Captain America was poorly developed. Felt like a side note to the relationship between Steve and Bucky. The introduction of a new Spider-Man was yet again confusing. I could go into more detail, but I don't wish to spoil the film for anyone who hasn't seen it. Plus, I'm not going to read out any more of that email, which is very long because we need to move along because... Move along. So Tom Hiddleston is going to be with us. Uh, you can watch, and it's all on the uh, on the Five Live website, and it's fabulous, and it's gorgeous, and... And it's musically exciting. And Tom Hanks is going to be a guest on the show very shortly. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're about to speak to the guy who I think is like the new Tom Hanks, not just because he's also a great actor. But when you interview Tom, he always gives more than he needs to, which makes him such a popular guest and a fabulous guy. And I think it's fair to say that Tom Hiddleston is the same. Would you agree, Mark? I would. That's very The gift that keeps giving. Now, I I slightly misled you. I I misspoke. 
when I suggested that you can watch this interview going out. What, what's happened is you will be able to do that. It's just not ready to fire. They're doing the, the CGI at the moment, aren't they? That's right. They're just changing the little background, putting in some 3D bits and pieces, you know, that kind yeah. of thing. So we will let you know as soon as you can watch this. And it is worth it because there's lots of double bass and guitar action coming up. So Tom Hiddleston uh, starring in I Saw the Light. You can hear our conversation with Tom in just a second. Here's a clip from the movie. I know I birthed you, Hank. I was there. But where you came from, and how you got what you got, and why you got it, I swear nobody knows that. Except maybe the Lord. Maybe. I'm doing everybody at the station a favor. That woman hadn't got a clue who the star is around here. And I haven't been driving you all over the state for 10 years booking joints and schoolhouses to see her swoop in like she is the Queen of England. I know why you and Audrey don't get along. One of you's afraid the other's gonna beat her to my pocket when I get drunk. That's a hurtful thing to say, son. Yeah, I'm just quirked, that's all. And that's a clip from I Saw the Light, starring the incredibly groovy Tom Hiddleston and a whole host of other fine people. Hello, Tom. How, how are you, by the way? <laughs> I'm very well. All the better for being called incredibly groovy, you know. Well, Friday morning. I don't well, think you've ever called a guest incredibly groovy before. I've never interviewed someone who is groovy. <laughs> That's why. And the last time we spoke to Tom, which was for Crimson Peak, he wasn't actually quite as groovy. And although when we spoke to you then, we didn't think you'd be around to talk about this movie. So we did a little bit of... That's Hank right. Williams yeah, we did. Yeah. Then. And now it turns out that you are around, not only around, but with a guitar. I've come. And Mark has come from the New Forest, from Narnia. Yes. With the double bass at half past five in the morning. You must yeah. have looked very strange. I got a lot of interesting looks on Brockenhurst train station, and I have had the full gamut of... That's a big guitar. How'd you get that under your chin? <laughs> Bet you wish you'd taken up the harmonica gags between here and there. So, <laughs> and what, what, what is your guitar, Tom, that you brought in? What is the... It's a, a Gibson, J45 Gibson. It was a gift to me by um, Rodney Crowell, who was my, my sort of um, Mr. Miyagi in the ways of the blues. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he was... Uh, he himself, Rodney, if people don't know about Rodney Crowell, he, he's... Um, from Texas originally, and he he he's lived in Nashville. He's he's been there for forty years. He's been making music, recording music. Um, he was married to Roseanne Cash, Johnny Cash's daughter, for seventeen years. He's toured with Emmylou Harris. Um, he is one of Nashville's finest, and he saw Hank Williams play on his father's shoulders at the age of two. Wow! Wow! And remembers it keenly. And then his father reinforced the memory because his dad's favorite singer was Hank Williams. So. Rodney is a, a keeper of the flame of this stuff, and um, and it, it was his gift to me when we when we started. I, I see. When you were talking about Crimson Peak, you you painted a picture whereby that you were actually in the middle of filming Crimson Peak and with all the makeup, but then you went back to your trailer and you were singing Hank Williams songs. That's right. In preparation for doing this movie, which is <laughs> yeah. dressed in full gothic that's right, yeah. groove. Just I had a whole bookshelf. It was very strange. My my desk was very odd. I was I had. Um, J.G. Ballard novels and um, Hank Williams songbooks and gothic romance literature strewn about the place. <laughs> it was, it was, so, my so head just was explain like how that approach was made because you're not, you know, being the lad that you are, not the most obvious choice for this iconic country and western style from Alabama. So yeah. explain how, how you got the gig and what you thought about that. Well, so um, I was born in London in 1981 and Hank Williams was born in Mount Olive, Alabama in 1923 and there is some distance between us. Um it, I didn't know, there is some physical resemblance uh, just in the way, in, in, our, in our faces, which I didn't know about. 
until um, the director and the writer, Mark Abraham, who's, who's produced many, many films that you'll have seen and loved. He produced Children of Men. Yeah. He produced um, Air Force One. He produced The Commitments way back. Um, and is a, is a fantastic and lovely man. And he was with his wife at the time watching Steven Spielberg's War Horse. And there's a scene in that film where I take my hat off and I'm, I'm buying the war horse to take to, to serve as, as my steed in the British cavalry. And as I took my hat off, Mark recalls turning to his wife and saying, that guy looks like Hank Williams. And his, his wife said, does everything have to be about Hank Williams? Can we just shut up and watch the movie? <laughs> <laughs> um, and nevertheless, after the movie finished, he looked me up and went and watched. Um, he found Terence Davis, The Deep Blue Sea, and he watched that. Wonderful. And Midnight in Paris um, by Woody Allen. And he thought, wow, this is, you know. Um, obviously, I played Fitzgerald, F. Scott Fitzgerald in that. And, and I think it was The Deep Blue Sea, actually, which is itself a story about um, loneliness and, and um, unrequited love. Uh, and he thought that was he, he. He then sort of we arranged a Skype call, and he really wanted to talk about that. And his great thesis about Hank Williams was that the genius of Hank's music and the power of his songwriting came from his own emotional heartbreak, the turbulence of his marriage. He was married to his. Well, he had two marriages, and many women, but but principally uh, to Audrey May Shepard, his first wife and the mother of of, of his child, Hank Junior. Um, and uh, they had a very rough and tumble relationship and he really wanted to draw the, just make that connection that this icon of American music who is revered by the public and also by other icons, by Bob Dylan, by Bruce Springsteen, by Merle Haggard and Chris Christopherson and Leonard Cohen and Keith Richards. Uh, he wrote songs like Cold, Cold Heart and Why Don't You Love Me and I'm So Lonesome I Could Cry and your cheating heart, and that all of this music came from his own turbulent inner life, and that was really his great suggestion. And I thought, wow, this could be interesting. You know, this could be. And I got just got excited by that acting challenge. I was like, oh, he wanted to take Hank off the pedestal and explore an artist as a young man. He was so young. That's the thing about Hank. He was twenty three, twenty four when he became a star, and he was dead at the age of twenty nine. You've done voices and you're a great mimic and everyone knows that. But was there a key to, I mean, you don't really, you don't do a full on impression of Hank Williams. Was there a key to getting him? Was there, was it the posture? Was it the, the guitar playing style? What, what was the key? I think it was a mixture of so many things. Um, because he, he, of course, had a public persona like, um, like great stars do. You know, I, you know, I'm sure. Um, Beyonce making a cup of tea is very different from Beyonce in her you know new visual album Lemonade. Is a bit, they're two different. I bet she isn't. I don't know. Is how she makes a cup of <laughs> Maybe. tea. She's just smashing off the, <laughs> off a pint of milk with a baseball bat. Um, uh, but so I was trying to find the, the I was trying to find that sort of explore that tension between his exterior charisma and his interior life. And the the key, there was a key, um, which was the discovery of these albums he released um, under a pseudonym of Luke the Drifter. And if you're a true Hank fan, you know about Luke. Uh, he used to call him his half-brother. Anybody heard of my half-brother Luke, Luke the Drifter? Um, and they were sort of, they were poems or meditations set to a musical accompaniment, but he didn't do much singing in them. 
and they made no money. People didn't want to hear those records. They weren't the hits, but they were explorations of 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 death and and loneliness and the and the sort of um, thinking about the afterlife if there was one. So maudlin and so um, morbid. Um, but I, I at last had access to a speaking voice, and that was what I used as a kind of key for his dialect. Did you play music before all this came along? Were you always a musician? Not in the same... I mean, only for myself. Um, I have a piano because I love playing it. Um, and I don't play it particularly well, but I but and I played the trumpet as a kid, and I've always noodled around the guitar, but now... I mean, I knew there was a new level of proficiency. I mean, I had to get there. It's, this guy is... I turned up in Nashville, and it was like turning up in Liverpool saying I was going to play John Lennon. Mm. You know, everybody... Everyone had, you're going to play Hank Williams? You're British? What? How are you going to do that? You know? <laughs> um, well, Elvis Costello got a bit of the same thing, didn't he? When he was doing Almost Blue and everybody just went, why? You're from yeah. the wrong place. How yeah. could you possibly? And it, it must be really intimidating. It is. Um, I suppose there are other actors who have gone before me uh, who've played who've played public figures or played icons. Um, but, but, but Hank Williams. I know. In in a way, it's insane. I I, I still don't know why I chose to do it, um, but uh, I, I was I was so excited by the challenge. I was so excited by the um, the gap between us, and then the common ground I found actually. And the more I'd explored his life, the more I related to him in strange ways. And also, it was a chance to to act. You know, sometimes we forget that actors are actors act and. Um, they play other people and sometimes they pull it off and sometimes they don't. And I wanted to see if I could. Halfway through the movie, I was thinking of when David Oyelowo came on the show and he was talking about playing Martin Luther King mm. in Selma, which he did brilliantly. Brilliantly. And he got people saying, exactly, but you're English. And you have this most iconic American hero yeah. being played by someone from the UK. And I just think maybe it just boils down back to that. Think if, if you can act, if you yeah. can do the role, if you can do the voice... Who cares where you come from? I think so. That's what I, I mean. I think I think that's what makes it interesting. Um, uh, I can think of lots of performances where you know you see actors really transform and deliver. I mean, I remember, I remember seeing Michael Sheen as David Frost for the first time on stage, and I, you know, this he's Welsh, and and um, and he's also a man of intense passion. But he had somehow channeled this. It wasn't exactly David Frost in, in Frost Nixon. This is, and then he did yes. it in the film. Yeah. Or Anthony Hopkins as, as Nixon in Nixon. I mean, Anthony Hopkins is as Nixon. Brilliant performance. Yeah, or, looks or, nothing like Nixon, but is but is Nixon. Yeah, yeah. Um, Daniel Day Lewis as Lincoln. I mean, obviously he's one of the greats, but. Um, there are. I just. I think. I think that's. I think maybe that's where. There are all sorts of different kinds of acting. There's very naturalistic acting where where actors are called upon to play quite close to home, and then there is a, a sort of a more transformative craft where, hopefully, you can you can convince an audience that you are somebody else or that you're channeling other things through through the mask of another person. On the soundtrack album, there's four or five tracks in which you are, it, it's you playing. So obviously that is the same as anything else going into recording studio and recording with a band. Tell me how that worked. Because, you know, it's a, it's really good recordings of those songs. It was, I mean, it was just, I still can't believe that I'm on a sound. I'm credited on a sound. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great album as well. It's good. It's it's not just me singing Hank songs. It's all the other stuff yeah, yeah. In, in the in the. On but the there's soundtrack. four or five of you, aren't there? There's yeah, four, yeah, yeah, yeah. And some which actually aren't in the film. I recorded Jambalaya, but there was no room yeah. for Jambalaya in the film, which is one of his biggest hits, obviously. And 
My Bucket's Got a Hole in It. Which is a great which song. Which is great. And he didn't write it. Um, I kept trying to persuade Mark to put it in the film because I loved playing it because it's just classic blues. And that's really what Hank did. Is he, he took the blues. He was taught um, by uh, a man called Rufus Payne. Uh, they call him T-Tot, a black blues musician. And I think... T-Tot taught him My Bucket's Got a Hole in It and he loved it and put it put it out as a record and made it a hit. So We've seen a lot of your physique recently. I apologise unreserved. No, 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 no. I don't think anyone's <laughs> been uh, complaining. There haven't been complaints, yeah. No, okay. high, you know, uh, high rise, uh, night manager, you are required to, there's a certain degree of uh, exposure mm. uh, involved. And yet when we see you in I Saw the Light, which we, you know, you keep your clothes up, well, most of the time, there's nothing to you. Did you have to lose a lot of weight for this uh i did lose some weight yeah um uh i tried to do it in the healthiest way possible because i knew i need i actually needed energy to sell that i mean i needed to get up on stage and sell those songs and we shot them very fast we shot all the musical numbers in about 10 days sometimes t- twice a day so i would do lovesick blues in the morning and why don't you love me in the afternoon and lovesick blues happens in 1947 and why don't you love me is 1951 so there was a degree of, um, I had to have energy in the tank. But I did, I knew I had to look like him. And, and um, my years in, in the, the Marvel stable have given me <laughs> yeah, um, a degree of fitness, which he perhaps didn't have. So what I did was I just, I ran. I ran a lot more and I ate a bit less. Um, Is it true it was peanuts and salad? Basically, it sort of. And for the we started running the twenty, end. cycling twenty five miles a day, running ten miles a day. I alternated, so I would either cycle. I couldn't. I couldn't do that. There wasn't enough time. To Lightweight. <laughs> <laughs> it's not, but not easy. Not easy. Um, I know. I don't want to overstay that. Sometimes I think, I personally, and I know this is shared by other actors. I think. I think the the uh, weight loss or weight gain can be overemphasized in acting. Um, and I, because it is, it's not, it's not the be all end all. I know that there is an obligation to look like, I knew you had an obligation to look like him, but I never wanted to, that to be the, the reason people came to see it. You know, that, that like, you know, gosh, like, look how much weight Tom's lost. It wasn't like that. Um, it just wanted people, to, you know, you just need people to believe in the silhouette, I guess. And it is a fairly extraordinary silhouette. In fact, we start, um, just talk about how the, how the movie opens, because it's a pretty, tough gig to pull off because you're acapella doing cold cold heart and you're you know so the stakes are pretty high right at the very beginning you need to make that work for us yes um very scary uh but also a kind of brilliant idea by mark because he knew that people the first question that any audience is going to ask who's familiar with hank's music is what does he what does he sound like Mm -hmm. can he sing and um it was a way of of being a little bit theatrical and and so there are no surviving recordings of Hank singing without musical accompaniment there's nothing a cappella that you can get out and the cold cold heart is one of his most famous and most loved songs tony bennett did a cover of it um um i mean endless people have covered that song um and it was a way of suggesting of letting the audience into my Hank, that this is this is how I look. This is how I sound. Um, and we took the steel guitar away, and we took the bass away, so that people would just listen to the words. Because I think he was one of America's great poets um, of the twentieth century, and it was very simple and very um, 
very wholesome and very organic. It, there's nothing um, pretentious about it, but but the, the the lyrics is what's inspired people, I think. But it's also important because my big bugbear with most musical biopics is continuity of voice. The voice that someone speaks with has to be the voice that they sing with. Yeah. I, I, you know, and it's you know Gary Boosie and the Buddy Holly story. Yeah. And it's Whacking Phoenix and Walk the Line. Yeah. It, you have to have continuity between them. And if you establish that voice at the beginning, then it's then it's absolutely fine. Then you actually do away with all the stuff about imitation or cutting it. But it has it has to be the same voice. The yeah. voice we hear talking has to be the voice we hear singing. Yeah. And that's you know if it isn't, it, it just puts me right off well it's like it's a break in the interpretation if you you know if you're speaking as a character you've dressed as a character and the, and the character's profession is a singer and then somebody else is singing it's like you know why turn up in a way i, I think and, and i was you know i get inspired by strange perhaps strange things you might not think of you think of you know de niro in raging bull who does all his own boxing or mm -hmm. or, or sissy spacek in the coal miner's daughter which is actually um, we did well, all our own coal mining, astonishingly. <laughs> she did. Um, the people, you know, if you're if you're going to play a character who does something, then then I think the requirement is to do do that thing. Yeah, um, I mean, Space Coal Miner's Daughter is incredible because that the, the sound of her voice is just you yeah. think you actually could have had an entire career just doing that. Yeah, it's so perfect. Well, she went and recorded an album after yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. Did you see? I think George Hamilton played. Hank Williams in a movie in 1964, which I yeah. haven't seen. I checked, Mark. I don't think you. I haven't. You, no. have, I haven't you? seen. I was. I was discouraged from from looking at it um, because just not to have any other. I mean, any ideas in my head about how to play it or how other people have done it. It, it was. It, it, Mark Abraham and Rodney said, "Just stick with Hank. Stick with the words. Stick with the music, and find in yourself. Find it yourself." And it's finding your Hank as opposed to finding somebody else's. Hank. Yeah. 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 Right. Well, um, have you still got your Hank with you? Well, yeah, I do. <laughs> uh, good, excellent. I brought him in my pocket. Excellent. Well, this would seem to be an appropriate moment then okay. uh, for for your inner Hank. And Mark, what are you going to do? Are you going to just sort of I'm going to follow him. I've got. I mean, basically, I do what, what bassists do, which is that they watch the lead player's left hand and go, "I'll play that note." This it's is fine. a this is a huge honour. This is a first. Oh, I've don't never, be silly. It is. <laughs> so, uh, so, what? Which song have uh, have you? Chosen? Well, I I feel like the song's called "I Saw the Light." Which you, which of course you don't. Which you don't see in the well. That you do. There's a very, there's a very short scene where um, Elizabeth Olsen, who plays Audrey yes. and myself, we sing, "I saw the light" to Baby Hank. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we'll save that. Keep our powder dry. But let's say, let's sing, "I saw the light." Shall okay. I go? Right. And I should say we're we're filming this, and uh, and it's in super surround uh, Hiddlevision. Hiddlevision has not been invented yet, <laughs> but this hasn't. is the first time Hiddlevision is being used. Which uh, key would you like to do this in? I'd like to do this in the key of G. Ah, the and I will give... Um, so we'll just do a verse and a chorus and a... You do her, see where we get want. to. Do the whole thing. It's only like two minutes 40, isn't it? <laughs> OK, we'll see where we get to. Two, three, four... I wondered so aimless, life filled with sin I wouldn't let my dear Savior in Then Jesus came like a stranger in the night Praise the Lord, I saw the light I saw the light, I saw the light No more darkness, no This is a mandatory night. interruption so For the full song, please go to the Five Live website Praise I repeat, this is a mandatory interruption. We had no choice. 
hence the use of the word mandatory. I wandered alone, worries and fears I gave for my own. And like a blind man, that God gave back his sight. Praise the Lord, I saw the light. I saw the light, I saw the light, no more darkness, no more night. Now I'm so happy, no sorrow inside, praise the Lord, I saw the light. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> there you go. I'm applauding on behalf of everybody else. Um, so is, is your Mark and Tom Hiddleston, um, I saw the light. Yeah, credited that way round. <laughs> so is you, uh, have you pitched your voice slightly, is it in a lower register to Hank Williams? That's the key he plays in. Um, I mean, I, I found out I have a natural baritone. He has a tenor. Um, uh, and that was the hardest thing. Was it, it, You listen to Hank Williams' records and he has this nasal twang that is, is, is sort of, uh, it's from the soil of Alabama and it's been soaked in whiskey and... and um, it's inimitable in a way, um, but it, it, but trying to find it was especially the yodel. You know, the, there's like there's that yodel of um, which I've done before, but uh, the way he do, the way he's able to control the break of his voice so he goes up in pitch by an octave and back down again on a song like you know, um, she's a low horn, go horn, and I am a low horn, the blue. All that kind of stuff. Um, See what I love about that is the way that you just did that, and then look like, yeah, of course I can do that. Anyway, moving on, it's just, <laughs> yeah, yeah. because so, that because it's it's a break. The, the yodel break is really hard. It is one of those things that you can either do or you can't do. Yeah, and if you can't, it's horrible. So well, we, just, we just have a couple of minutes just 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 sorry. before you, just yeah. before you have to go. Uh, I saw you tweet yesterday. I think it was yesterday the day before that you were back home for the first time in four months. That's right. Yes, which must be a fantastic relief. Is it just to be? I think you went for a run around the park. I did. Yes. Yeah, it was lovely. It was a lovely spring day. So um, uh, and so, presumably, has this been mainly Kong Skull Island? What yeah. Is, what is that? You've I been have up? been. Uh, I've been Kong chasing okay. around the world. How did that go? By the way, it went well. Did you catch him? Well, you'll have to wait and see. Okay. Um, uh, the movie is called Kong Skull Island, and it is coming out in March of 2017. So you have a while to wait, but it does feature maybe. Um, the best group of A-list racehorses you can you could imagine. It's it's uh, Samuel L. Jackson, Brie Larson, John C. Riley, John Goodman, Corey Hawkins, Jason Mitchell, Thomas Mann, uh, and the biggest movie star in motion pictures, um, you King Kong. <laughs> so um, I mean, it was really exciting. We shot in Hawaii and Australia and Vietnam. In Vietnam, it was the the biggest American movie that's ever shot there, and and um, it was actually very exciting. We, we landed and we gave a press conference and the US ambassador was there and the whole country was there because no, because I don't think, I think there are places in Vietnam unseen by cinema audiences and, and so Skull Island will look very like northern Vietnam. It's exciting. And while you are back home, what's the best thing, that, what, what is the thing that you can do here which you can't do when you're working in Kong chasing? What um, do you look forward to about coming home? I think it's just being, you know, just being, London is home, being back in London, seeing my family, um, having fish having a fish and chips um uh you know we, 
with the European Championships around the corner. Um, Mark talks, talks football all the time. He can't wait. I do. It's just really, I, I can't. When, when do they start? They start very soon. I, I don't believe you actually seriously looked at me when you were asking that question. He's being ironic. I've never seen a football match in my entire oh, life. Sorry. I, I know nothing. <laughs> okay. I'm not, into, I'm not hugely into club football, I have to say. But international, international football, I go, I go a bit crazy for. And Wimbledon's around the corner and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> do, you like, do you like tennis? No. No, it's no, a sport. It's a sport. Okay. All right, <laughs> All right we're out of time. Uh, Tom Hiddleston, we appreciate you coming in. Thank you very much, Thanks. indeed. Thanks, Simon. Thanks, Mark. And that's why he's the new Tom Hanks. <laughs> although Tom Hanks probably couldn't sing with us, to be honest. Although I didn't have much to do when the singing. Fair. There's going to be more, isn't there? Yeah, uh, we had time to record another song uh, with Tom and Mark. It's the closest you're going to be to singing with Tom, Thank with uh, Hank Williams. Yeah. So we'll, in fact, we'll close the show with one. Uh, yeah, and cool. there'll be a chance for you to see that interview. We'll let you know as soon as all the pictures are ready to go. What else are you going to review? Uh, we're going to review uh, Florence Foster Jenkins, Bad Neighbours 2, and much, much more. If you just joined us, you missed the great Tom Hiddleston. A singing... We're still feeling the love. And a playing and a yodeling. A slapping and a strumming. No G's. And, <laughs> and uh, uh, with Mark. And it was, uh, it was very entertaining. Um, Dave in Dewsbury... By the way, we're going to finish the show with another one. So yeah, because we recorded two because we, we he had to get on to another interview, and uh, and you know he, we, he he did have to go somewhere. But he but he actually said, "Let's do another one," and then we did. David Dewsbury, this is great. What a top man Tom is, uh, with more than able support from Mark. What a great show, says Dave. Um, Sarah Reason, I saw the movie last month in Washington in a tiny cinema with two others. I loved it, by the way. But I loved it, by the way. By the way. But the old lady who was in there refused to believe Tom was singing despite my protest. It was frustrating, but she just didn't believe he could be that good. Can yeah. you, are you going to review it in just a second? Yeah. Can you, we just touched on the fact of that yodel break that he mm-hmm. managed to do. Yeah. Most of us have never tried a yodel break. Just explain how difficult it is. Okay, well, a yodel yodeling and yodel breaks in which is very very important to country music and bluegrass you can either do it or you can't i mean you have to, it's a real it's a real skill and anyone who's sort of really well versed in yodeling is sort of taught it from a very early age and the reason it's difficult is because it's a you know it's a vocal leap which is in, it's involving changing the way in which your vocal cord is vibrating so that you can do the, the, the octave leap. And then an awful lot of old country songs and, and bluegrass songs. Do. I mean, we in the band, we do a version of Waiting for, the, Waiting for a Train and we do a yodel thing in that, which is in, in harmony. And there's me and Mike, and Mike is infinitely better at, at it than I am because he's from Alabama. Yodeling um, in harmony. Yeah, but it's, it's, but it, it's believe, and, and we, we're doing very, very simple yodeling. What was lovely about what Tom Hiddleston did, there was he just picked up the, and he said, it's like that bit when you go, and he, and he can do it and he can do it. It really well and I as, as as far as I understand he learned it for the movie I don't think he knew to do it before uh, from uh, uh, you can tweet with at with entertainment Nikki yo wow I was listening on the school pickup that was brilliant uh, Tom for Bond you know we didn't talk about it because we yeah, know there's no point but well done for not doing that well I just uh, yeah what's the point in asking the, an he's already said he doesn't, he doesn't know, know. Well, it's a but good, he said he, he, would be, he would be honoured but he doesn't know Stephen McCauley as if my missus doesn't need another reason to leave me for Tom Hiddleston <laughs> he can sing brilliantly too how unfair is life James Lewis uh, Tom Hiddleston Hiddleston he says here smashing it as ever um, Michael yeah. after a manic Weekend at work trying to complete forms to require funding for clinical trials. Wow. I was flagging this Friday afternoon. But Tom Hiddleston, not only are you the finest sheer car on this side of the Jungle Book, mm. but also your Hank Williams brought the largest smile to a 
mentally fried researcher on a Friday afternoon. So thank you very much. I'd also like to say, um, you know, plaudits to him for doing that because, as you could probably tell, we didn't sound check or anything. We just said to him, "Bring your guitar in." He wasn't, and he's in a movie in which basically his ability to sing is one of the key selling points of the film. But God bless him. He just sat down, whipped out his guitar. You could hear he was kind of slightly too close to the mic, all the rest of it. All that stuff is he, because he, he can do it. And, you know, there are other people who would have said, well, we'll have to do sound checks, we'll have to test it, we'll have to have people in there. No, he just sat down and did it. And I, I think really had something. Plus, he had no idea whether I could play the double bass or not. I mean, I know, I know, you know, a monkey. You might have all your albums. I know a monkey can play the double bass. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's what you call somebody who hangs around with musicians, a bassist. Um, how do you make a bassist happy? Who cares? Um, Those are all the, drummer jokes, aren't they? Drummers and bassists with the rhythm Same section. kind of thing. Um, anyway, so it's had, it's fair to say, some sniffy reviews. Yes. But there's only one review that anyone cares about, so this is it. So my feeling about uh, I Saw the Light is this. I, I really do have this obsession with, if you're doing a musical biopic of somebody in which they are the, they're a singer, it'd be slightly different perhaps if you were playing an instrument, but if they're a singer, you have to have continuity of voice. And those examples that I was quoting before with, with Gary Boosie, one of my problems with La Vie en Rose was the fact that we, you know, we were moving into Edith Piaf because you know, who could do Piaf? And... For me, this stands or falls on whether the voice that you hear talking is the voice that you hear singing. And there is no question that it is. From the minute that the film begins, and you got me, you talked about this, that idea of sing that song, drop everything else out, introduce people to that voice. And you you yourself compared it to like the opening of uh, Inside Lewin Davis. Yes. So immediately what it does is it tunes you into this is the voice, this is the form, this is what you're going to get. And I think that all the way through the film, that is sustained. What you do get is this sense that you are watching a person going on a particular journey, a particular trajectory. And whenever... He's singing because so much of what's going on in that film is to do with the songs provide a kind of commentary on the unfolding action, which is to do with uh, him and his marriage falling apart, his health failing, his trouble with his spine, his battles with uh, drink, his battles with medication. And all that has to be heard coming out in the music. And there are a couple of sequences when we just see him almost, you know, on a couch singing a song. You couldn't do that stuff if you didn't know that what you'd seen before is, you know, up on stage at what's meant to be the Grand Ole Opry and playing and singing in a way that completely convinces you that what you're watching is a unified performance. So as far as Tom Hiddleston is concerned, I think he's right there on the money and I and I, I loved that performance. As far as the film itself is concerned, I think it's not quite as sure-footed. What it does is take the story in a very sort of, straightforward way you know from the from the marriage through the touring through the songwriting through the marital problem through all that stuff in a fairly sort of straightforward linear fashion breaking every now and then to have these kind of faux black and white uh interviews with people remembering um uh, remember people remembering Hank Williams which I don't I don't think that particularly works as a device I also think that it doesn't have the kind of classic romantic arc that a film like Walk the Line does have in terms of the way in which that relationship pans out. So I think in terms of a piece of of drama, there are flaws with the way it is structured. However, every now and then it hits the right note, certainly with all the musical performances and certainly in terms of of Hiddleston himself, there's a bit in it in which he's being, in which Hank Williams is being interviewed about his songs. And he says, I wrote this down on the screen, he says, everyone has a little darkness in them. They hear it 
I show it to them and they don't have to take it home. Folk music and hillbilly music, it's sincere. There ain't nothing phony about it. And it's describing the songs as Red Cross. And actually what's nice about that is that when it comes, it doesn't feel like author's message. It doesn't feel like, okay, stop, here we go. Here's the thing, here's the what's it, and then we move on. That's organic as well. So I think that what it is, is it's a flawed film with a flawless central performance. I think it's a film which in itself is fairly straightforward dramatically. And I, it was weird because when we were talking about um, Don Cheadle's Miles Ahead recently, mm. and Miles Ahead is completely sort of formally inventive. It basically turns into an action movie. It's got car chases. It's got shootouts. It's got, you know, it's got them chasing around after a, a tape that didn't exist and wasn't stolen. It's got Ewan McGregor as a journalist who didn't exist and wasn't around and all this stuff didn't happen. I remember saying at the time, just tell me the story. You know, I, I can do without all this other stuff. Sometimes there were moments in, in I Saw the Light when actually I felt that a little bit of that invention, a little bit of that formal inventiveness would have gone quite a long way. And of course, if you look at Buddy Holly's story, in terms of it plays really fast and loose with the facts, although it has to because there, are, there was a competing movie being made at the same time. So I don't think in terms of the way that it, that it tells the story, it is completely on the money. But it's the lightning rod at the centre of it is Hiddleston. And I bought him the minute we opened and I bought him all the way through. And he is enough to carry the film through the things that don't work. What did you think? Yeah, I thought uh, I yes, completely right. You are transfixed by him, and he's obviously in every scene. In and every scene, he's in every scene. I, I have, as we said in the interview, listened to the uh, soundtrack album, and it's it works very well. Um, you mentioned Whacking Phoenix in the course of the interview, and in the same way, if I'm listening, you know, the soundtrack to Walk the Line is a really good soundtrack. Really yeah, you know, yeah, good yeah. good versions of uh, of the songs. And if Whacking Phoenix comes on singing Walk the Line, then I'm not going to go no I just want to hear the Johnny Cash original and obviously Hank Williams no one's ever going to beat him but some of these songs a lot of people won't know they go oh really does this come from me it was Hank, it was Hank Williams and I think um, Tom Hiddleston's versions are, are fabulous and you can tell that he's I, been yeah, yeah, yeah. with the best musicians with the best advisors and he has a great ear for that yeah and but more importantly he does understand the songs he does understand the songs he understands that the songs are stories and he you know, and that's why it would be comp- it would be terrible if that broke the voice. What are you looking at? There's a uh, there's a quote from Scarlett Johansson which I was going to ask him about. That's in the interview, uh, which in the interview, but okay. we moved in a different direction. But Scarlett Johansson, who clearly he's worked with um, a lot in Marvel Land, he describes Tom Hiddleston as being clinically enthusiastic. <laughs> so that's clear. So the version of Tom that we get here is yeah. that's the way he is on set. He is just. Fabulously positive and amazingly engaging and very, very enthusiastic about everything. The other thing I was going to say that you touched upon, although we didn't sort of follow it up in the interview, is the stance. Because so much about this is to do with the way the way you stand. Because there are moments in that in the film which he's having to be wearing these preposterous costumes that are kind of you know presaging Elvis in his most ludicrous periods. Tasseled suits with keyboards and notes and everything. I can't yeah, like and those. and yeah, I know you and I you and I should basically start rocking that look. But so much of it is to do with the way in which he stands behind a microphone, the way in which he holds the guitar, the way in which he's understood. You know, when the Ramones were forming, there was this whole thing that, that they, they rehearsed the way they stood. They rehearsed the way they looked. And because they're just standing. I was like, no, no, they're standing in a very, very particular way. When, when Hiddleston walks on stage, and then 
the stance is right. And that's and there's an awful lot. There's like a, a recurrent shot of him looking out from under the brim of his hat. There's one sort of very pointed conversation in which a, an executive is trying to get him to take the hat off and he sort of kind of aggressively won't. But the film uses and he wears that hat well. He wears that hat very well, which is the key to a lot of <laughs> his posing. Yep. Uh, and singing, and uh, I Saw the Light is out today. So there is one other uh, movie which involves a lot of singing. now, in, in which the lead actress actor does all her own singing. Exactly. But if you're going to choose for, like, relaxation purposes or maybe you've got a few miles to kill on the road, if you're going to choose between the soundtrack of I Saw the Light or Florence Foster, Foster Jenkins, Jenkins, chances are you're probably going to go for a little bit of Hank Williams. But anyway, uh, FFJ, we spoke to Meryl Streep a few weeks ago. We did. So uh, Florence Foster Jenkins, based on the true story, and it says at the beginning, based on uh, true events, of uh, Florence Foster Jenkins. It's 1940s. uh, She is a rich socialite who loves music and is a great patron of the arts. When we first meet her, um, Hugh Grant, who is her manager and partner, common-law husband, uh, Sinclair Bayfield, uh, is doing readings from Shakespeare to the Verdi Club. Um, there's a lovely line in which he says he does a bit from Hamlet and he says a play I've performed many times, although sadly not yet in the principal role. <laughs> and then we see these weird tableau vivant, which consists of Florence Foster Jenkins being lowered down on a winch, um, you know, providing inspiration to writing musicians and then her appearance as the Valkyrie. She goes to a Lily Pons concert. She is overwhelmed by hearing this music and she wants to share that profound communion. So she decides that what she's going to do is take up singing lessons again. The problem is that despite the fact she is musically talented, and she is, I mean, actually, as a, you know, she was a, a very, very talented musician beforehand, she can't sing and she can't hear that she can't sing. But she is surrounded by people who, for various different reasons, encourage her to believe that she can. All of which is fine until suddenly the prospect arises of a concert at Carnegie Hall in which the audience response cannot be contained. Here is a clip from early on with her um, relearning her her voice, refinding her voice, and her music teacher basically not telling her that she's nowhere near the notes. There's work to be done. But you've never sounded better. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maestro, it is true that a lot of singers my age are on the decline, but I seem to just get better and better. I know, it's hard to believe, isn't it? Well, I am so blessed. There is no one quite like you and that is that sounds like salieri and mozart yeah, yeah, yeah. in in amadeus when amadeus yes. says so, with every note it just it says, says salieri now so then what happens is that she decides that she wants to play carnegie hall and uh sinclair bayfield uh, played by hugh grant is suddenly placed in this terrible dilemma he doesn't want her to go out in front of a mass audience because people will laugh at her and yet it's what she wants to do and it's what she wants more than anything else. So the movie then moves towards this kind of how are we going to contain this situation? Now, obviously, uh, on the one level, there, there are plenty of laughs. I mean, it's directed by Stephen Frears. There are sections in it that are hilarious. And one of the reasons that they're hilarious is because Meryl Streep does a really, really fine performance. She demonstrates that thing 
that we should all remember, which is that in order to sing badly, you have to be able to sing well. I mean, the Florence Foster Jenkins story has been told many times before. It's been stage plays, you know, more in Littman's play. There is a version of the story which came out just a few uh, well, a month ago here, called Marguerite, for which uh, Catherine Froh won a uh, a Caesar Award. I think the film won four seasons. Playing a fictionalised version of Florence Foster Jenkins called Marguerite Dumont, whose name obviously sort of refers to Margaret Dumont, who was the, the foil of the Marx Brothers movies, and to whom Stephen Frears incidentally says, you know, I, I can see a resemblance between Florence Foster Jenkins and, you know, that thing about preposterous and yet also uh, utterly sympathetic. So Meryl Streep is really, really enjoying the performance she's really enjoying that you know the singing she's really enjoying doing what she can which is that being a talented enough singer to be just just wrong but the reason it's funny is because it's close enough because it's not because there's nothing funny about somebody just singing badly and you said when you interviewed Meryl Streep and I thought this was very astute unlikely as that sounds mm -hmm. you said the film's got the wrong tagline because it you said it was being advertised as the story of the worst singer in the world, and she's well, it not. It says two things. It says the inspirational story of the worst singer in the world, and I don't think it's a particularly inspirational story, and she's certainly not. Okay, I think it is inspirational, but but that's but what I agree is that she isn't. But what the point is that what she is is overreaching by quite some distance, and so so she's taking on some of the most complicated pieces and missing them by a mile. But you, but what makes it work is that you can hear the the the, the gusto. So, firstly, I think Meryl Streep is terrific, and it, there are times in it that I was reminded of her performance as a later life Thatcher in The Iron Lady. There were many times I just thought it's incredible. She just gets better. I mean, she just she commands the screen. You know, she under. I remember seeing Streep, you know, early on in, you know, films like The Deer Hunter and Sophie Strauss, films in which she was incredibly intense and then had the blossoming of comedy and then Mamma Mia. So you think, hey, you know, it's, it's, there's really nothing that she can't do. She can do Mamma Mia. She can do those songs. She can make the nonsense of that music make sense. And in this, it's a role that she is clearly enjoying the heck out of. The question then is whether or not you are laughing with her or at her. And if you look at a film like Marguerite, Marguerite has a much more sort of cynical edge to it. Firstly, the inspiration for her singing in Marguerite is the absence of a husband's love. In this, it is the presence of a love from Sinclair Bayfield, who, despite the fact that he's off living with another woman and their marriage is... Uh, marriage? I'm sorry, I can't unusual. say that. It's unusual, but... What you get is the sense that he genuinely does love and care for her. He refers to her as Bunny. He talks about our very happy world. And there was more than one occasion in which there were very, very tender scenes between Meryl Streep and Hugh Grant in which I was moved to tears. Incidentally, I think it's Hugh Grant's best performance. I think he's, you know, he's, it's funny that he's kind of suddenly found this silver fox thing and he suddenly manages to remind you that when he was great, because he did have a, he did have a period when, he was in some comedies that really he shouldn't have been in and he was in some movies that were coming. But I think he really gets his teeth into this and I think he's really good. I also think, and I know some people disagree, disagree with me, I think that in the case of Marguerite, your sympathies, in the case of um, Florence Foster Jenkins, pardon me, your sympathies are with her. That what happens is that you see her as an heroic figure. You see her as somebody who believes in this music for, you know, for the, all the right reasons, who what she wants to do is to go out and perform for people who incidentally have been in, you know, terrible circumstances because, you know, the war is on. There's that lovely, that lovely line when she's worrying about the potato salad and there's no chives. And Hugh Grant says, I know, unconscionable, I know, but they do tell me there is a war on. All that stuff is really funny and is really sort of charming. But for me, it has, the film also had heart. And I think that 
in order to like it, you have to you have to think that you are on her side. You have to think that actually what she's doing is not because there was this sort of strange mocking thing afterwards that all those records became known as you know the worst singer in the world. Those seventy eight recordings, which kind of passed into legend. But in both Marguerite and this, and indeed in the other versions of the story that have appeared, the central thing is this, you have to laugh with her. You have you have to love her. And I think uh, the comparison that I was thinking of was Tim Burton and Ed Wood. You know, Ed Wood was sort of hailed as the worst filmmaker of all time because he made Plan 9 from Outer Space. But it is clear in Ed Wood that Burton has fallen in love with Ed. And it seemed clear to me in Florence Foster Jenkins that Frears had fallen in love with Florence. I think... All of that is true, but I think you, we're laughing at her as well. Uh, mm-hmm. And it may be that, you know, Stephen Frears is, someone else has said Stephen Frears has his cake and he's eating it because we are laughing with her. But there are moments, and that clip illustrates one of the, the first time that we hear her singing and with, uh, is it Simon Helberg? Who, yes, who is so brilliant. I'm sorry, I can't pianist. believe I haven't mentioned him in the review because he is fantastic. He's so funny. But at, at those moments when we're hearing her sing and we're looking at him, we are laughing at her as well. Well, yeah, I don't agree. Because she's I, terrible. But <laughs> we're, not, we're not laughing with her. We're laughing at a woman who can't hear the fact that she's awful. There's a line in Marguerite, and these are a very interesting pair of movies, in which there's a discussion about singers can't hear themselves. Can she hear herself? No. Does she know? And there is a scene in Sandy Marguerite, which is almost exactly the same. The first time the, the, she hears her, hears her sing, and the, the camera just looks at his face and, and watches, and it's, it's a similar thing. But I don't think that is necessarily laughing at it. I didn't feel, and I don't feel even now, talking about, I didn't feel that it was at any point cruel. I thought that what it was... No, I don't think it's cruel. Oh, fine, fine. But I think it is possible... I think it is possible to laugh, but but laugh lovingly. I mean, I, I, at no point did I feel that she was the butt of the joke. And partly I didn't feel that because Street commands the screen. I mean, there's that lovely thing which is in the trailer and then is almost not in the movie when she's recording at Melatone Studios, wherever it is, and, and then there's a little thing at the end when it says, they'd like to go for one more. And she goes, well, I just don't see why. That one was perfectly good. Uh, the joke it, is with her then, not at her. But Here we have um, an email from someone who must be a matinee idol from another generation. Okay. It goes, goes by the name of Florian Fisher. I was lucky enough to see FFJ and preview uh, the brilliant little art house cinema in North London yesterday. Um, my viewing was somewhat commodified, in the, as in commodified, even though I haven't seen Marguerite. Mark's repeated worries about whether in comparison we laugh at or with became a worry of mine too. Well, it does sound like this version will be the broader, more farcical, carelessly hilarious of the two, and the laughs were indeed plenty and at times uproarious, especially thanks to Simon Helberg's amazing, if unsubtle, performance as the even more amazingly named Cosme McMoon. Really, really named Cosme McMoon. As a dish, I'd say it's 90% rompy comedy, uh, with only the end feeling tonally a bit rushed and not quite right. But in the middle of the movie, there is a scene of such sympathy and pathos, perfectly placed and judged. I broke into a few actual sorry tears in Me the middle too. of those uh, laughter tears. I think McMoon's growing sympathy and even love for the deluded diva is our way into the movie and the movie's way out of pure mockery. And I also think that, that Hugh Grant's clear affection is central. I was about to say something. Oh, yes. Did it not occur to you that Simon Helberg's laugh sounded like Mozart? A little bit. A <laughs> little bit. And also what was clever about it was it also slightly mimicked her reaching for a high note. 
There's a scene, one of the first public performances that they do together when Helberg is reacting to Meryl Streep singing, yeah. which is, <laughs> which could be studied like a, as a silent movie. It is it's right. that kind of masterclass in yeah, facial expressions. I agree, I agree. Um, Phil in Swindon. We are at a loose end the other day, decided to go and see Florence Foster Jenkins. I'm not a great Meryl Streep fan, but I loved this movie. It managed humour and pathos delicately, and I ended up reassessing Hugh Grant uh, who yeah. I found wholly believable. I loved it. I have to say, I, when, when his name comes up on the opening credit, well, yeah. without knowing anything about the movie, when yeah. his name came up, I did... Oh. Yeah, and then by the time it got to the end of the film, can I say, incidentally, oh. how interesting, two emails both using pathos, and that's, that is right. And that is why it is a different film to what it could have been. Siobhan, in uh, Dublin, just out of a morning screening of Florence Foster Jenkins, I thought it was a lovely film which treated a story that... Could have been slapstick, heavy-handed or mawkish with a light and easy touch allowing the characters and the story to stand proud. While Meryl Streep was as good as always, it was Hugh Grant that really stood out for me. His relationship with Florence and his true affection for her allowed the viewer to take a positive view of this well-meaning but questionably gifted singer. That's one way of putting it. <laughs> While the difficulties of his life also allowed the viewer to question not only their relationship but the morality of allowing Florence to foist herself on the public. Simon Helberg was also great and added great comic effect but uh, with perfectly timed facial reactions that often represented that of the audience. Well done to Stephen Frears for allowing this story to be moderately balanced and allowing the audience space to interpret the relationships and well events. Done. And Rebecca in I'm London... I'm agreeing with all of these emails, incidentally. Rebecca in London, um, the subject of this email, it's all about the potato salad, she says. Yes. What a fantastic film this is. I was ready for a good laugh, but the warmth, depth and emotion, something that could in something that could have been a shallowy comedy, have left me thinking about nothing but this story for the last five days. I hope it will stay with me longer than that. The performances of the three lead actors, it's amazing. The script and design show a thorough commitment to the characters and the style of the period. Although it's filmed in Liverpool in the Hammersmith apartment. Yeah, Liverpool looking unbelievably yes. like 40s New York. Muriel is Didn't you brilliant. think? Yes, I would not have, you no. wouldn't know for a second. Muriel is brilliant, of course. Simon Helberg is a revelation and Hugh Grant is perfect at his sneaky best as the complex, charming, underhand, deeply loving snob, St. Clair Bayfield. What a great name that yeah. is, anyway. Can I just say, incidentally, um, the fact because uh, people are writing in just using Muriel as if it's combined, I would like to say that uh, prof her doc good, doc good lady Professor Her indoors was the person who first said Muriel Strepsilon. I'm very pleased that it's now passed into common parlance. And, and, and one of the many lines that is available at our pharmacist. That's right, Remember, Muriel Strepsilon. Well done, yes. Everybody in the world, concludes Rebecca, should see this movie, if only to see Mr. Grant dancing uh, oh, yes, the... with Nina Arianda. She is brilliant as the nouveau riche Mrs. Stark. People who have not seen this film may think it will have little plot, no revelation, and serves merely to laugh at a slightly ridiculous old lady. It is so much, much more, more than that. I had not thought so much about the nature of commitment and love, belief, and what dedication is. What and a that... lovely email, and once again, we have the best listeners in the world. Well, we do, because they're just smarter than everybody else's. Yeah, and often smarter than us. Always smarter. <laughs> and have all the best ideas, as we've said many times, yeah. although you can't claim any money from us just no. yet. Uh, what's in the next half hour? We'll definitely be doing Bad Neighbours 2. I'm all sure right. you're looking forward to that. Yes. Uh, also, uh, Evolution. And uh, there's a new version of Robinson Crusoe, as seen from the point of view of the Aminals. Which is what we've all been waiting for. I'd certainly, I'd be, I'd be, I'd be, when was somebody going to grasp that nettle? Turned out to be Belgium. David Evans is in Warrington. Uh, during the Birmingham, What's he doing there? I don't know. He's been there a while. Okay. During the Birmingham 10K road race on Sunday... Oh, I've done 10K. I, I saw a runner with Hello to Jason Isaacs on his T-shirt. Grinning at this during a gruelling road race actually gave me the air of a simpleton. <laughs> 
I have to say it was worth it. So I'd like to say hello to the runner that said hello, Jason Isaacs. Anyway. Listen to our programme. It makes you look like a simpleton. Um, Paddy Baker on FFJ, which we've just been uh, discussing. I'm not sure if the film passed the six laughs test. Parts of it were clearly not meant to, but it was highly enjoyable all the same. All three leads gave strong performances. Meryl Streep was as good and as bad as you hoped that she'd be as the deluded soprano. Hugh Grant was touching as her manager and partner, protecting her from mockers and scoffers while maintaining a complicated personal life. And as the effete accompanist, Simon Helberg soon banished all thoughts of Howard in the Big Bang Theory. The only cast member whose presence I found a little jarring was, I'm sorry to say, Thelma Barlow of Coronation Street and Dinner Ladies fame, who popped up a couple of times as an elderly New York uh, as an elderly New York. As an elderly New York. Playing the whole city, that's amazing. What? All of it? All of it. As is often the case with films based on true events, there are a couple of points where I thought that wouldn't have happened. But there was so much to enjoy nonetheless. Everything Hugh Grant does arises from his desire to give Florence a happy life, and this film has similar motivations for its audience. Yeah. And, um, I'm glad that everyone's picking up on that, because I, I, that is how I felt about it. And Alexa, uh, on this email, who eyewitters in London, though that, of course, has got nothing to do with us. The eyewitter. No, never, never heard of it. Have you not? It's no. it's quite a thing. And you, it, you look at it, and it shows around the world. And no idea. Two people in North Korea. No idea. No one in Antarctica. Lots of people in Reykjavik. Mm. We're moving further north, by the way. And then you need to be educated. I've cleaned my brain of all. Anyway, uh, Alexa says BBC, um, BBC, BBC. What? <laughs> you all right? Yes. Alexa King visited Toronto for a holiday last year, nicely uh, lined it up with the very fine film festival where I attended a plethora of much-anticipated movies, many of which went on to win Oscars. One potential Oscar bait movie was I Saw the Light. I was decidedly nervous. Tom Hiddleston is such an incredibly watchable actor. He is. Dedicated to his craft, but a very English man, faking the singing like the hillbilly Shakespeare. Dialogue in an old-school Alabama accent showing Hank Williams' laconic southern charm. Could he pull that off? Answer. The start of the film sent chills down my spine he nailed the eerie opening scene singing almost in isolation cold cold heart the velvet voice lovely scene was in fine form and to an english ear sounded on point and all the worries were gone i truly wished that it had maintained that high standard but the story let me down i believe hank's life was so much more interesting than the snippets of events in this life than was shown uh, on screen Anyway, very good. Thank you very much indeed. Another song where in which Tom Hiddleston reaches peaks that he actually didn't reach in the movie yes. as he p- performs with his favourite double bassist. Uh, but anyway, something else that's new. Go on. So uh, let's do Bad Neighbours 2. You remember when Bad Neighbours, or Neighbours as it was called uh, in... No, was it called Bad Neighbours? It's Bad Neighbours. No, I can't neighbors. remember where they changed the neighbors title. Neighbours is the Australian... No, 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 I did, but I can't remember whether they changed the title of it in America. Anyway, whatever. So when Bad Neighbours came out, and I, I wasn't very fond of it, and my complaint was that it seemed too often like basically the, the, the leads were just being allowed to, to just riff and ramble and, you know, it, it looked like a collection of outtakes and uh, the the trailer had blown all the sort of funniest gags. So anyway, now uh, Bad Neighbours 2, which I approached with a real sense of trepidation because... As you know, in recent years, I have been sort of falling out of love with Zac Efron, um, particularly after his uh, recent, um, uh, you know, forays with Robert. De- oh, I can't even. Actually, I don't even want to think about it. I don't, even, I don't want to dirty the inside of my mind. So I went into Bad Neighbours 2 with the heaviest of hearts. I have to say it was better than I thought it was going to be. So the story is it's a few years on from the original movie in which um, this couple are living next door to a house that is owned by, uh, it's a frat house and they're making a terrible amount of noise and it's a sort of you know war of attrition between the two sides. This one, 
A few years later, the central couple now want to sell their house and uh, move somewhere else because they're parents and, and uh, they you know want to expand. However, Chloe Grace Moretz arrives at college to discover that sorority houses, this is all the American thing, sorority houses, frat houses, that the sorority houses are not allowed to have parties. They don't have any what right. Is, what, what is a sorority Sorority house, house is the, the female version of the... Right. I mean, b- believe me, I only know this from movies. You know, the Animal little, house and that kind exactly, of thing. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, so, so, um, and the new Richard Linklater movies. And the new Richard Linklater movie, which I haven't seen yet, which I'm seeing next week. And so she decides that what she wants to do is to set up her own sorority, Cap New, and... The next thing you know, they end up looking round the house, which is next door to the house that our central couple are trying to sell. Now, there is a, there is a thing apparently now in American real estate. You agree, agree to buy a house, but there's a 30-day period in which during that 30-day period, you can drop by and check whether everything's working as you expect it to be. What's that going to look like if it turns out that there is a great big noisy sorority next door? By coincidence, Zac Efron, who is now grown up, all his uh, frat boy friends have all moved on to greater things, but he is still horribly stuck in the past, is cooling his heels in that very house where he meets Chloe Grace Moretz. You guys thinking about renting this place? Maybe. What do you guys want with such a big house? We're starting our own sorority outside the system that can totally do whatever it wants. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like throw dope-ass parties and totally rage. A sorority that can party? Kappa new. What's wrong with fraternity parties? What is it? I mean, we threw great parties here. Pimps and hoes, CEOs and corporate hoes, <laughs> Boise boys in Idaho's. They're like super sexist. <laughs> Every party is like themed ho. I mean, oh, jeez. Oh, no. Oh, God. Mm hmm. Yeah, it- I see your point. And that's basically the gag. The point is that he suddenly realised that actually everything that he was doing up until that point is totally reprehensible. And so now what he's going to do is to teach the sorority because he wants to get his own back on the on the neighbours who he had the fight with in the previous movie. I mean, it's the most complex of setups. Uh, but considering what it could have been and considering how unfunny the first one was, I actually did find this slightly more tolerable. I still think that there are there, there's too many sort of running vulgar gags that aren't anything like as funny as they think they are um we get the 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 airbags gag that was in the first one returns here in kind of uh fairly straightforward slapsticky fashion and it is still too too sort of uh too coarse to be genuinely amusing but that said there are there there was enough in it that made me feel that i might be back on speaking terms with zach efron all of this is a way of saying it's not good but it's not that bad. And certain, it's, sometimes it's like, it's like watching a movie that somebody said, you know, let's take one of those movies that did all that, all that old sort of crass stuff and let's, let's just put a tw- <laughs> that thing. There was an interview with Spinal Tap once and, uh, and in character is Spinal Tap. And they said, uh, yeah, that, they were asked about the documentary Spinal Tap and they said, yeah, it's terrible because he just twisted it. He twisted, just did that twist and it became a different thing. Well, this is kind of a little bit like that. It's like taking one of those old movies and put it, a slight twist and every now and then that spin works and every now and then it, 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 it has some funny moments. Overall, it's still baggy and indulgent and I'm not going to go as far as say it's good, but it's not that bad. You know what you sound like? What? You sound like um, a political spinner who has gone into the local elections and is, is basically now come out, coming out and saying, 
I know it's a bit rubbish, but it's not quite as rubbish, rubbish as you thought as you thought it might be. Yeah, but so but, that's... but bear in mind, I went in thinking it was going to be really rubbish, yes. and what I'm trying to do is to be honest and say I did laugh a couple of times. I did enjoy it a couple of times. There were things in it. There were gags. So bad neighbours too gained a couple of counts. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So it gained a couple. It of should counts. have gained a whole lot more, <laughs> but, it, but, it, but it only gained a couple. Exactly. And it held Rotherham. Yeah. <laughs> Mark in London, I just thought I'd quickly give my opinion on Bad Neighbours to a messy but funny sequel. Yeah. If, you, if you didn't like the first, there's nothing much for you here, but a higher dosage of Zac Efron six-pack. Have you ever imagined what a Seth Rogen feminist film would look like? Seems inconceivable, right? But unbe- unbelievably, this is kind of... He gives it a good go. Yeah. And the outcome isn't always successful, but he certainly delivers on the laughs nonetheless. I know Mark will hate it, and it no. won't get Efron any closer to being in his good books. It did. But hey-ho, and hello to Jason. So it just goes to show, you can't always predict my very predictable reaction. And Rose Byrne gives the funniest performance I've seen since Ray Fiennes inhales Caesar. Uh, Ewan Franklin in Southampton. Would that it was so simple. Short-term listener, already love the show. I watched Bad Neighbours 2 this morning. What a way to start the day. I was expecting it to be terrible. It wasn't that great, but it wasn't that bad either. Can I just say, sorry, is it me? Or are these saying exactly what I just said? This is uncanny. Acolytes, Mark. I'm ashamed to say that it did pass the six. Is that like an electrolyte? Yeah, exactly like that, yeah. But but there were many jokes that fell flat, as well as gross-out scenarios that were superfluous and inexplicable. None of the characters were particularly likeable, particularly the parents who deserved to have their children taken away from them. <laughs> Despite it being another weedy American comedy starring Seth Rogen, yawn, Nicholas Stoller's direction is far superior to other films of that ilk. Not really worth watching, and if you did, once would be enough. Oh, yeah, Thank yeah, yeah absolutely once. It's not something you need to own on home video to watch over and over again. By the way, uh, the there is a 360-degree video uh, which you can play with on our YouTube channel of uh, Mark and Tom Hiddleston doing a tune. Uh, together, which we played you earlier. We're going to play you one before we finish uh, the programme. The full uh, interview is going to be on our website very yeah. shortly. It's just, I think I'm insisting on having a little few tweaks done. and a bit Are of, you? A bit of Photoshop. Okay. I'm trying to get rid of this. Okay. So anyway, uh, and, we'll, and we'll let you know and uh, we'll uh, we'll pass all that on as soon as, uh, as soon as we know. So Bad Neighbours 2, uh, that's out. What else can we manage before we get to hear you and Tom again? Okay, so let's very quickly do uh, Robinson Crusoe, um, originally known as The Wildlife, which is a title that actually makes more sense. Story of Robinson Crusoe, as told by the wildlife on the island, uh, which he is shipwrecked. Um, there's a macaw who thinks there is more to the world than just this island. All the an- other animals disagree with him until the shipwreck shows up with the ship and indeed Robinson. The uh, macaw is absolutely thrilled. The rest want rid of the shipwreck. Here's a clip. Guys, 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 what are you doing? Scaring off the sea monsters, thank you very much. And what if they aren't sea monsters? Did you see the furry one's teeth? They'll rip us to shreds. Everybody calm down. We're safe here. Are we? We really don't know what those creatures are capable of. I know one thing they're capable of. Leaving the island. What? Oh, no. Come on, this can't be happening to me. We got rid of him! Yeah! We scared them big time! Will somebody tell me what's happening? And that's pretty much the tone of the film. It's that... I mean, I... I watched it in 2D and... I got the sense that it was designed very much to be in 3D and there's a lot of pointy-pointy, a lot of... I mean, almost every conversation turns into a Fawley chase. I mean, it was... 
No, it's not very good. It may be that an undiscerning uh, younger audience may find a certain degree of cuteness in the animals. It certainly looked like the kind of thing that better known companies would probably have done better with. I mean, that central idea, let's look at it from the point of view of the wildlife, was kind of interesting up to a point, but the point was reached very early on. Didn't offend, didn't offend me in any way, but didn't entertain or delight me either. Is that it? Yeah. Can I talk about very quickly about Knight of Cups? Well, it depends. Have we got time? Well, uh, how long is your is your song? Uh, I think a couple of minutes, I think, isn't it? Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. So, well, let me very quickly do no, Knight of Cups, then we can move on to you know other stuff if we need to. So, Knight of Cups, which is the new film by uh, Terence Malick, and Terence Malick is one of those people that you always think, oh, God, there's a Terence Malick film out. You know, this is great. It's always worth seeing. So. The story, such as it is, centres on Christian Bale, uh, who is, I think he's meant to be a screenwriter, sort of wandering through this life of extravagant Hollywood privilege, surrounded by incredibly glamorous women, all of whom appear to adore him, wondering where it all went wrong. He walks along a beach, he lounges in bed, he drives around in cars. In one scene, he goes to a party, which looks like ambient outtakes from Entourage. Here's a clip. Music is very important. It helps me to fall in love. I fall in love 20 times a day. You know, your face was very familiar to me, but I didn't know from where. You're fantastic. Thank you. Listening to music on headsets, uh, totally unaware you were staring at them like a dirty old man. Myself, I, I didn't want to get a divorce. I never stopped loving them. But the way I, I love them changed. They are like flavors. Sometimes you want raspberry, then after a while you get tired of it, you want some strawberry. Hi, you are such a gambler. What's your name? What's your name? Rick? Do you know anybody here? Wow, that was dull. Yeah. Are there, is there a script? Or are they just kind of making stuff Basically. Up? Voices drift in and out. I mean, we've got everybody. You know, Kate Blanchett, Natalie Portman, Imogen Poots, where's... Bentley, Brian Dennehy, um, the voices fade in and out like this. The whole thing looked like a really well-shot Infinity by Calvin Klein commercial. I mean, it it was just self-indulgent, noodling, navel-gazing. At one point, we discover what a strip club looks like when shot by a really top-line cinematographer. And uh, I... The you know the title there's tarot cards and there's the story you know knight of cups and then we go searching for the pearl but then drinks from the cup that makes him forget what he was doing whole thing is kind of like a I just I really 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 started to lose heart very very early on I thought it was one of those films that just really tried one's sympathy and it was utterly self-absorbed utterly self-important its relation to its female characters was just dinosaurish of in the worst possible kind and i thought that christian bale wandering around looking sorry for himself was like somebody scraping their nails down a blackboard did anyone need a slap everybody needed a good sleep and a run okay i mean you know tom wouldn't have done it Oh, Tom, mm -hmm. your mate Tom. Yep. Tom anyway, Wilson. a real shame because the guy's a genius. Who? Terence Malick. Oh, I said I'd forgotten all that already. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, before we finish, yes. we need to play another track we do. from Mark and Tom's Greatest Hits. Yeah.
All right. Uh, tell us about this song. So uh, to, this was... Uh, is this in the movie? I can't remember whether it is or not. Um, so move on over. And uh, when when we had talked about, about, about the beginning, we said, what do you want to play? And he said he wanted to play um, I Saw the Light. But then he also said, well, can we do this? Because, you know, it's, it's a song that I like. And then we ran out of time in the interview. And then we were told we have to go. And then he went, can we do that? And we went, Tom, of course, if it's something you really want to do, meaning, of course, yes, just... Let's just do it. So we did. Two, three, four. I came in last night at a half past ten That the baby of mine wouldn't let me in So moving on over Moving on over Move over, little dog This is a mandatory interruption. Get it on over. Ease it on over. Move over, nice dog, cause the mad dog's moving in. This dog house here is mighty small, but it's better than no house at all. So slide it on over. Scratch it on over. Move over, short dog, cause the tall dog's moving in. Ah, oh, you can play that stuff all day. How about that? So uh, together Brilliant. again, Tom Hiddleston and Mark, uh, which were recorded uh, earlier, there will be a splendid video up on the Five Live website very shortly. There is 360 degree video, uh, which you've done before, haven't you? When you did, yeah, yeah, when we did the, music, yeah, which yeah. you can play around yeah. with, and you can look around the studio, yeah. uh, and everything. TV movie of the week, by the way, John Quigley says, "Great choices this week. Both Escape from New York and Alien are in my top ten films of all time." I'm going to plump for the producers simply because of how hilarious and audacious it is. Paul Starkey, I'm going to go for the brilliant ludicrousness that, that is Escape from New York whilst praying to the movie gods that shut up, but the shut up, but what reboot of said film <laughs> never happens. I think Mark will go for Robot and Frank though because it's a lovely little film. Nadim uh, says some thumpingly great films here. I'm going to go for The Warriors all day long, even though I've only seen it 30 times. I think Mark will go for the lovely Robot and Frank. Um, Nick Fryer, any film that includes Alien is, any list that includes Alien is unfair on the others. With Alien, not only did space stop being clean and sparkly, it became scary and threw in a couple of cinema's most iconic moments. Mark, though, will choose The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. What is our TV movie of the week? Robot and Frank, which I just thought was a really strange, gentle, weird little film set in the, you know, sci-fi, sci-fi in fact, story set in the near future. Frank Langella, who's this ageing cat burglar who becomes the unwilling recipient of a robot butler and they strike up a strange friendship and it's really I thought touching and heartwarming and nothing that I expected it to be at all particularly when you sort of think of the the subject matter which sounds like some some sort of slightly off the wall sci-fi movie which it kind of is but it's a really really lovely character piece and beautifully played this text says yes after one of the worst fortnights I've had for many years Tom and Mark have put a huge grin on my face and a reason to feel happy again. Oh, there is good. something about that music which is just feel good. Even it really though, is, even isn't though it? Some of it is quite, is quite. But what's really lovely is you know, Tom Hiddleston playing that piece because you can hear the joy in his in his singing. In and his you'll be able voice. to see it very shortly. Uh, you can see it on our YouTube channel and it'll be up on the Five Live website very shortly. Movie of the week. Well, I have to say for me, Florence Foster Jenkins. Well, that was the show and we were okay. Just a But Tom. Sort of saw us through, didn't he? He's very smart. Can I ask you a question? Mm -hmm. Are you a little bit in love with him? No. 
Well, uh, what do you mean by that? What do you mean, what do I mean by that? I mean that, you know... Have you got a man crush on him? I admire him enormously and he's welcome anytime. And if he, if he got on the... If he rang me now and said, shall we go Simes, for Simes, let's go out for a beer. Then I would say yes. Yeah. But I don't think that means I'm a little bit in love with him. I think that... I think that is being, you know... No, it just means he seemed like a good guy. Okay, fine, just me then. So you're a little bit in love with him? Just a little bit. What about more like Richard Gere, the way you like Richard Gere? I don't like anybody the way I like Richard Gere. Okay, I'm sure that'd be reassuring (laughs) to your family. (laughs) They're all used to it. Andrew Simons is a very, very long-term listener. In fact, he was listening to you uh, on Danny Baker's Radio 5 breakfast show. And me, oh, that I, is a long-term and listener. And he says, me, when I had a posse. Oh, OK, that's probably talking about breakfast, I imagine. Yeah. Anyway, I hope that you can help me with a, a film uh, confession, a bit of crossover territory. My son Toby is currently receiving long-term hospital care in Leeds and will not be able to visit the cinema again until the summer at the earliest. He and I are regular film-going partners and love listening to the programme. His only complaint is that I agree with Mark far too much. Without Toby, I have tried other partners, his sister Katie... Her boyfriend, Dom, came with me to see Zootropolis. Great film, but they ate all the sweets. So Toby was desperate to see The Jungle Book, but without the prospect of him seeing it until a DVD release, his mother and my much better half, Rishmal, went to see it without him. It's a wonderful film, but we haven't had the nerve to break it to Toby that we saw it without him. We hope that hearing the news from you, this brilliant jungle-based uh, remake uh, from his film Heroes, might soften the blow a little bit, especially if you can recommend a cracking summer film release that he can look forward to. And can you tell Toby that his mum is not nearly as interested in discussing the films that she sees for hours afterwards? And I can't, <laughs> wait, can't wait to sit next to him in the Plaza Skipton when he's fully recovered. Hello to Jason and Toby's girlfriend, Kelly. Do we know of any uh, big uh, cracking summer film release? The thing is, we don't know how old Toby is. No. Which is a little bit tricky. No, and also, I mean, you can't prejudge what's... I mean, I'm really looking forward to Warcraft, but I haven't seen it yet, so I don't know whether it's going to be any good. I don't know what certificate it is and all the rest of it. So all, all I can say is, um, you know, Captain America's really good fun. That's a, that's a, It must be a 12, isn't that's it? That's there that's now. 12. Yeah, no, I know, I know, but it's going to be in cinemas for quite a long time. Yes. Jungle Book is there now. But I, I, as far as what's coming in the summer is concerned, I just... I, I gen, generally only know... Well done, just Sorry. bang the microphone, why don't you? Sorry about that. Not a problem. Um, I've lost the thread now. Doesn't matter. Okay. Um, DVD who, of- who will notice? No, I'm going to just tell you about another movie very quickly before we do DVD. Okay, tell us about... Another well, you, movie very you quickly. You told us about enough movies? No, I haven't. How much time do you want? Evolution. So Evolution is this really odd film directed by Lucille Hadzihalilovic. And, um, Lucille who? Just rewind and you can hear that. Okay. Hadzi Halilovic. And um, I think that's how you pronounce the, the, the name. And forgive me if I'm wrong because my pronunciations are all over the place. It is a really, really strange movie set on this kind of fantastical island where um, the boys, the young boys bear children and their lives are effectively run by this group of women who have this, this strange brow and seem to have this peculiar relationship with selkies and with the water and at the beginning, we meet a young boy who we see him swimming in the water. He sees um, what he thinks is a body of a boy with a starfish on its belly. He goes back home. He lives in this village by the sea with black of floor, white buildings. Um, he tells this to his, the person we think is his mother who feeds him food that looks like worms in spinach. Um, his friends bury a sea creature which they found and taunt him about being a coward. By night, the women gather on the beach and involve it and, get, and writhe in strange, gooey ceremonies. By day, 
They bathe the boys in this weird anointing uh, sort of ritual. The mother finds a starfish but says there's no body and then he's being fed medicine, which his mother tells him he has to have because his body is fragile, because it is changing. The whole film is has a really strange, peculiar atmosphere. And as I was watching it, I was being really captivated by its spell. It started reminding me of many other movies, which is probably the best way of kind of explaining what kind of film it is. At times, there was hints of uh, Goodnight Mummy, which we reviewed quite recently. Hints of what? Goodnight Mummy, the, fi- the, the film about in which the children come to believe that their oh, mother that is not their mother. Yeah. There was a touch of upstream colour in a film I know that you absolutely what? loved. You're uh, referencing things that no one gets. Um, there was a touch of the creepiness of, of... Oh, yes, yes. Hang on, maybe I know this one. Never Let Me Go. Mm. You did see that, yeah. It had had a you saw that. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, fine. It at times, yes. There was there was shades of a Uh, really really dark version of local hero. Oh. Few, but that was fleeting. Oh, okay. For the most part, it was much more like uh, Never Let Me Go and Upstream Colour and all those other movies. Genuinely creepy, genuinely strange. The sort of weird body horror movie that one would have seen in the Scala cinema at some peculiar all-nighter. That I've se- It's a few days ago now since I've seen it, but it sticks with me like a half-remembered dream. I'm not sure what it's about. I'm still trying to figure it out. But it certainly had a haunting power, and it certainly stayed with me. And it is uh, it is called Evolution, and it's it's really quite remarkable. Mm, might give it a miss. Okay, so I tried. You did. I'm trying extensively. I'm still trying. I'm still greetings. Very trying. An anonymous email which goes thusly. Fine. Greetings from the same office. I'm emailing from the depths of Radio Four. The main thrust of me emailing was going to be to add my praise to what was must be a burgeoning Jungle Book inbox. Yes. I finally saw it this week after overcoming a chorus of, what are you thinking, it's a children's film, but instead. How fascinating, as a long-time listener, it has been to see the goings-on in the Five Live corner of a Friday. There is flapping, there is laughing, there is chit-chat, and... And get this, OK? Get this. Get this. This, this is get the this. most important bit in the entire podcast. Such a slim in number team. Such a small number of people responsible for making this show. Such a small number making this show. My goodness me. <laughs> if ever my eyes... It's all string and glue, isn't it? If ever my eyes are wandering and I see a quiff bobbing about, I think, aha, it must be Friday. I've been here almost a year, yet the other week... It was only the other week I tweaked that my favourite flagship film show came from this floor. I was looking for a studio to use one day, barged into S34, which is this very studio, Mm -hmm. and was greeted by Alfred Hitchcock. Odd, I thought. And then I had this kind of Madeleine Proust moment, a flashback to watching the live stream one afternoon in about 2013. Gasp. It's your studio. And if this wasn't enough, who do you traipse through the office today, Mark? Who do you traipse through the office with your very slim team? Hardly anyone. None other than Tom Hiddleston. Lovely Tom. Prime Hollywood real estate here in Broadcasting House, (laughs) floor three, zone C. Well, I never. And did everyone on this vast floor look up, gawp, fling their computers out the way? Not a soul. It was like I saw a ghost. As PM makes its way to Radio 4, I sometimes walk past your studio in a purposeful way and have a quick peek. It's not strange at all, over and out. Please don't say my name. All right, I won't. Jeff. Lucy Graham. I made that up. 
I know you did. Thanks very much. Why, why did that name just pop into your head? No idea. Because you're a writer, you see. You can just think up things like that. Like if you said to me, come up with a, with a name, I'd, I'd say Birchnick or Benjamin Sniddlegrass, That's and neither of which are likely. I could have come up with Joseph Dujashvili Ilyanov. Is that a character in one of your... No, I think that's a combination of Stalin and Lenin. Oh, no, Lenin is Vladimir Ilyich yeah. Ulyanov and Stalin is Joseph. Joe, Uncle Joe. Stalinovich. <laughs> Stalinovich. <laughs> is it time for... <laughs> that might be slightly wrong. <laughs> what is Stalin's real name? Come on, you're the trot. Joseph Vazaria, Vazarianovich. Oh, full name, hold on. Stalin. <laughs> Man of Steel. Yeah, but absolutely not. Hang on. Go, Joseph Vissarionovich, Stalin, not Stalinovich. No. Well, it was a reasonable, <laughs> it was a reasonable guess. Shall we do uh, DVD of the week? I think. I think. We're, are we poised? Are we going to say hello to Joseph Stalin now? After you did Kim Jong Un. Jong Un. <laughs> but he's still alive. There's not much point in saying hello to dead communists, is there? Really, dead communist corner. Don't think that's going to happen. That would, could be an extra uh, little um, deviant bit in the deviant. in the iWitter app, which has got nothing to do with us or the BBC. No, it certainly has nothing to do with me. No, and if you, I think that secretly it has got trot, something to do with uh, you. What? I think that secretly you made it up. You invented it. It's like you know Ronnie Barker used to write sketches yeah, yeah, under yeah, what was yeah. the pseudonym that he used? I don't know. Ronnie uh, Barkovich, probably. Yes, certainly. probably that. I think you did invent the the every time I write every all these emails I read out, I spend all week writing. Them. You certainly write all my gags. Yeah, that's true. Right, and now it's time uh, for DVD of the week. <laughs> okay, you work shy fops. You've had your four-day week, and now it's time to shape up and get back to work. That embossed oak cabinet won't build itself, you know, and your DVD of the week collection said it won't organise itself into the Commodian filing system, misplacing the DVDs and then claiming you never had them in the first place. Last week, Mark chose Akira Kurosawa's masterful Ran movie to lose down the back of the sofa. What will he go for this time? What do you choose? Sean Elstob says, While a different animal to the hustler, the colour of money is a personal favourite. I don't think... It's had any sort of digital restoration, not that I've heard of. Anyway, that's what I'm going to go for. Fergal O'Farrell says it'll be room for both me and Mark. Keith Fraser, definitely room. Probably the best film I've seen in the last year. I suspect Mark will agree with me. And Dermot Cushion, Mark will go for room, just like Lenny Abramson's previous film, Frank. It's not the film you think it is. What is our... DVD of the week. My DVD of the week is, as everyone keeps rightly predicting, is Room. And for the very simple reason that, as that email had just said, it is not the film you're expecting. You and I have both seen it, and uh, I think you and I both hold it in very high regard. I think it is one of the finest films I've seen in recent years. I think Stephen Rennick's music is utterly brilliant. I'm trying to do this while you actually sound like you're moving house. I'm just tidying up. Um, It's brilliantly adapted from... uh, Donahue's novel quite finished <laughs> by the novelist herself it is brilliant <laughs> just don't even know why we bother it is brilliantly played missed brilliantly played uh, by uh, Brie Larson and Jacob Tremblay and I think it's one of those films that demonstrates that it, you can genuinely take any subject matter and address it in a way 
that turns it into something else. For me, it is absolutely a film about the love between a mother and her child. It is a movie about the extent of the world and the way in which imagination can transcend reality. And I think it is superbly directed by Lenny Abrahamson, who is one of my favourite filmmakers. I mean, I've seen the film three times now, and every time it has broken my heart, but in a beautiful, beautiful way. Mark, you've been a sensation uh, on the show today, and you've sung, and you've strummed, and you've slapped. It's been I've done good. one of those two, those three things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I neither sang nor strummed. Anyway, it's been very good. You did say, because you were going, moving on. Oh, yeah, yeah. It sounded like somebody else. Now, oh, can I? Can we play? Can I play something? Oh right, yeah. What? This yes. is the Panic Brothers. Oh right. Okay, and this is a lovely song by the Panic Brothers. I won't tell you the title of it because it's. Uh, we'll get to it. Just listen to it. it. Wasn't a very good voiceover, by the way. That crashed the vocal. Okay. But I remember that I don't toke. Right. But knowing me, I choke. Mm-hmm. I'm so low, even down looks up to me. And they've got lovely voices, these two. Is there no way to end my misery? Here's why I'm playing this. Bit of a yodel Wait. break. I love the Panic Brothers. I think they're fantastic. I think they're absolutely wonderful. I love their vocal harmonies. They sound like the Everly Brothers. They sound like the Leuven Brothers. They're really, really funny. I mean, years and years ago, back in the 1980s, we did gigs with them in Edinburgh. Who are they? The Panic Brothers. They're, just, they're, they're, they're like... Bob, Bob and Roger Panic. <laughs> yeah, that's right, yeah. And uh, and we pl- we played these gigs with them uh, up in Edinburgh, and I watched them night after night after night doing these songs. It was really, really close. I mean, it was really funny, really witty, really brilliantly performed. And uh, anyway, I want you to play you that because that's um, uh, uh, almost as good as Hank, uh, as Hank Williams. And I played it because of uh, very good the Hank Williams connection. And you're obviously completely unimpressed. But if anybody no, else I... likes them, the Panic Brothers, check them out. I think they I think they they back together again and playing. And I would you know walk over hot coals to see them because they're fabulous and I love them. Well, you're fabulous and we all love you. And I, you're fabulous and I love you. Thank you very much indeed. Do you want to? But not as much as I love Tom Hiddleston. And not as much as you love your double bass. So as a final treat. Oh, yes. As we fade out. Yes. Could you just pick up your instrument and give it a good bash? Never knowingly undersold. Here we go. What did you call it? The, uh, the Bob Fiddle? Bull Fiddle. Bull Fiddle. All right. Here we go. Thanks very much indeed for listening. The Florence Foster Jenkins of the double. On digital and online. This is BBC Radio 5 Live. BBC.co.uk slash 5 Live.